Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast. This is where we talk about the stories within the panels. This is Albert Lamb, your and co-host. I'm Drew Tan. And that's Drew Tan. <laughs> <laughs> We're still getting used to Zoom. We can't see each other, so... <laughs> We're not even using Zoom. <laughs> yeah, we're not even using Zoom. See? <laughs> there is no video on this. <laughs> well, yeah. Anyways. So today we're continuing our uh, series on evergreen comics for characters that we love. Uh, for those of you who who just need a little extra reminder of what that is, what, what we determine to be evergreen stories are, those are timeless stories that sum up the essence of everything that you as a reader would need to know about a character so that if you came into it never having heard of the character you could read it uh, these comics and these stories and it would tell you everything about what makes this character special and uh it would educate you on everything that you need to know at about what is at the core and the essence of who they are and what they are about and what their motivations are and why they do what they do. Exactly. That That sounds good. And, and on top of that, the craft of these comics is extremely high. Absolutely. Absolutely. So today, uh, we're still going to be following up with, uh, I know fandom was quite a bit a while ago, a couple weeks, but uh, there were a lot of characters that came out of fandom that uh, got a lot of attention, and we wanted to give our two cents on those characters. Uh, for those of you who want to learn something about, you know, all the new DC stuff that's coming out. So our first character today is Batman. Have you ever heard of him before? He's he's a little minor known character, uh, an indie character, so <laughs> he's he's not someone I'm super familiar with. <laughs> uh, I think I think my kid brother told me about him once. I don't I don't remember. <laughs> Was he ever on Pogs? <laughs> For those of you who are younger, if you don't know what pogs are, you should look those up. <laughs> <laughs> they were circular discs of cardboard that we used to buy and play with. <laughs> we would stack them up on top of each other and slam them down. And then we would see what flips over and we would keep the ones that flipped over a certain way. It was it was a really primitive version of marbles. Yeah. It was not a high point in our in, <laughs> in, in our cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we wanted to talk about evergreen stories for Batman. And we're talking about... So, what we're doing is we're choosing stories that in and of themselves have something to say about the character of Batman. Um, and... It's really interesting because we discussed it uh, earlier this week while we were discussing this podcast topic, and Batman is is an interesting case because I really feel like there are 
with a lot of characters, when you try to come up with an evergreen story, I think we all have an idea of what what concepts exist at the core of most characters, and they tend to be pretty universal. Like for for me, the greatest example I can think of is Spider Man. I'm I'm pretty sure, even though Spider Man has evolved over the years, Spider Man is someone who who at his core is this one thing so it's it's pretty easy to pick out the various elements that make up what a spider-man story is yeah yeah right yeah because because at his core spider-man revolves around power and responsibility that whole notion of how he's a character who struggles to maintain or balance those two ideals in his life um so when you look at spider-man the that's i think that's usually the center uh idea of any great memorable lasting spider-man story it's a starting point (laughs) yeah the starting point at the very least the foundational element of of spider-man whereas with with a character like Batman, there have been so many different interpretations of this character over the decades. I think for the modern reader nowadays, we have a specific image of what he is, especially based on the movies, TV shows, and video games that are based on him. But if we look across time and examine what Batman has been over the decades, you'll find that there are so many different interpretations of Batman. Yeah. And I would even have to say probably most of them are valid to some extent. Mm. He doesn't necessarily have... Like, there are Batman stories that, by our standards to for the modern reader, you would think that they're just bizarre or weird. You know, like he'd go back in the... 50s or 60s he would go to an alien planet or or deal with uh you know talking animals or something like that you know those are things that most of us nowadays would be like that doesn't really fit in batman's role that doesn't belong in a batman story can you imagine if they made a a batman movie a live action batman movie where he was going to alien planets and stuff yeah that'd be weird or if there was a batmite (laughs) yeah yeah the batmite (laughs) a magical bat imp that you know grant's wishes <laughs> that's yeah it's it's a bizarre batman's spectrum is a lot wider than a lot of other characters and i think that's the thing that makes it so interesting to try to come up with evergreen stories for him because what ends up happening is it's like you said like it, it, to some degree all these different versions of batman could be valid on some level, right? Mm-hmm. And and in that sense, the evergreen story when when we're choosing an evergreen story, really, what we're choosing is an evergreen story depending on which Batman we're thinking of or talking about. If that if that makes sense, if uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So. Um, you know, for those of you who are listening, I, we thought it'd be a good idea to just go down the list and give you a breakdown of uh, all of the Batmen that have existed over 
over time and just the various offshoots that have become uh in that have become popular in in the imaginations of the batman fan base um so i want to start off with the very original version of the of the of the batman the golden age batman um i nicknamed him killer batman but (laughs) but but really what he was was he was a you mentioned it earlier, uh, off off the podcast, but he was a dark, avenging, uh, pulp character. Who this version of Batman was very grim, and not just grim, but he killed people. I think in the very first, you mentioned uh, to me that uh, the very first version of Batman actually used guns, and yeah. one of the things that I remember was in the first Batman comic. He threw a dude off a building. Yeah, I don't like, know if it was off a building, but I remember uh, the dude f- fell into a, a gigantic vat of acid or something, and then at the very end, Batman just kind of grimly looks down, and he's like, a fitting end for his kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was a Batman for a very particular era. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Batman that was very inspired very much inspired by the popular uh pulp fiction heroes of the time like the shadow i mean i guess the shadow is kind of the only one that i can think of because he's lasted so long i I don't even know how popular the shadow is today but if you compare what the shadow is with how batman was when he was first created the similarities are um the similarities are apparent so yeah. you can definitely assume that batman was inspired by uh that archetypical pulp character the guy that was he was a vigilante who uh was willing to get his hands dirty to to fight criminals and even even uh kill them or use guns uh, lethal methods yeah. And he had no scruples whatsoever, and he didn't really hesitate about it. It was really... He was really quite black and white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Uh, I, think, you, I, th- I think he was really uh, grim like that at the very beginning. And maybe... maybe... <laughs> Is your dog okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I think after uh, after World War II, they started to tone down the uh, grittiness of it and kind of drifted in a more fantastical uh, direction. Plus, by that point, he had also gotten a kid sidekick. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I haven't gone out of my way to research the Golden Age era too closely, but there could be uh, a chance that the people who are making the comic decided, well, if we're going to have a kid sidekick, maybe it's not a great idea to constantly have, uh, you know, stories that are too heavy or too violent because the whole purpose of having a kid sidekick is to boost sales. You know, you want to get more kids to read the comic and kids are more likely to buy it when they see someone that looks like them. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I, 
I'm hard pressed to. I, it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes just because, you know, my modern brain. So uh, there's definitely. Hello. Yeah. Okay. So there's definitely a part of me that wonders whether like that level of self-awareness where they were like, oh, we're going to give him a kid sidekick to make him kid-friendly, and whether there was ever a moment where it dawned on him that, hey, do you think Batman should be killing quite as many people as he does? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I wonder about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Yeah, we move from that golden age version of Batman to something that is almost a polar opposite to that, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. We, in the Silver Age, we have, uh, which was from 56 to about the 70s, what we end up getting is, because of a lot of circumstances, there's there's actually a lot of context involved, but... Batman has this massive shift, and I I call this silly Batman because it's in this era where Batman, as we mentioned earlier, he goes off into space and he has these adventures where he's fighting aliens or these purple people, or uh, you know they introduce things like Batmite, which is this imp from another dimension who like worships Batman and grants <laughs> wishes. And these are the kind of, of stories that he has in this era. What's that one other uh, version? He he comes into contact with another Batman from another planet called the Batman of Zuranar. Zuranar. Um, Actually, mean, Grant Morrison would bring that back. Yeah, decades I mean, later. Yeah, um, like I I, I wanted to talk about that later, but uh, Grant Morrison's take on him is was really interesting uh when it happened because i remember listening to an interview where he was talking about all these different versions of batman and he was just saying well a lot of modern writers tend to cherry pick um their version their ideal version of batman and they just go with that batman for their story and i wondered what would it be like if i just accepted all of the existing lore of batman as all real as as if they all happened and i just told a story with that presented all of these elements even the bizarre stuff as stuff that had actually happened in his life and it it was an interesting it was a really interesting concept the way that grant morrison presented it um he found a way to make even he found a way to make batmite work or fit in at the very least and he found a way to make the Batman of Zer and R R was it? Yeah, yeah. He found a way to make that work. Um, it's a bit of a spoiler, but should I should I spoil it, Drew? Uh, nah. Okay. Give people okay. something to seek out. Okay. Okay. So uh, we'll just leave it in there. But if you ever check out his Grant Morrison run, um, yeah, just keep that in mind. Uh, do you have anything to say about the Silver Age Batman? I think uh, one thing that we did mention, especially uh, regarding the the early beginnings of that silly era of Batman, was that maybe uh, what was going on in the real world might have had some effect on on it. Because 
we think back to the 50s, we're thinking about the seduction of the innocent, right? Frederick Wortham's crusade against comic books. Right, right, uh, right. That, you know, there's a, there was a lot of content that was suddenly, uh, well, according to him, inappropriate for children, uh, let yeah. alone, you know, a, intelligent adults. So maybe that's a re- another reason why that the creative teams assigned to Batman at the time needed to tone things down and, you know, clearly establish that these stories were lighthearted fantasy and even a little bit, I guess, I guess now we would think of them as campy. I don't know if that's how they regarded them at the time, mm. but I guess, I suppose that's why we had Batman having adventures that, you normally wouldn't expect Batman <laughs> to have. Yeah. You know, he's someone that someone that's more of a street level vigilante type, all of a sudden dealing with talking animals or going to space or other planets and things like that. It it's it's a little bit of a jarring shift. Yeah. Um yeah, so for those of you that uh, aren't too familiar. Uh, it was essentially an essay that was written that said that delinquent behavior would was attributed to kids being. It was a book. Seduction of the Innocent was a whole book. Oh, okay. It was a book yeah. that was written that proposed the idea that uh, delinquent behavior from children, you know, kids that were in gangs, was they were being influenced by comic books. So, you know. It caused enough of an uproar where I think they even had congressional hearings about it. Yeah, they did. They did. Uh, yeah, and as those a congressional result, hearings led to the basically killed EC Comics. Yeah, and it all and as a, one of the things that came about as a result of it was the Comics Code Authority, where you know there was some body uh, or slash organization that went around, you know. It was a form of self-censorship yeah. for the comics industry so that the so that the uh, the actual legal authorities would stay off their backs. Yeah. But, yeah, and as a result, what you saw was Batman went from this really pulp, um, you know, hard pulp character to... Uh, it, was, it was, like, jokier and sillier and, you know, fighting... I don't even know if he really fought. Did he fight? Like, I guess he fought aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever read any of those old old ones? Old comics? Maybe when I was a kid, I, I had my hands on some reprints or something. But mostly, yeah. the thing I remember, uh, the, the thing that gives me the strongest memories is I had this book, um, this big hardcover tome that was just about the Silver Age of Comics. And it had all a bunch of covers from that era of Batman, along with little summaries to talk about what happened in those issues. And that I would I would reread um, those passages over and over, and they would something about them. Even even though it was silly, looking yeah. back, it, I know it's silly, but at, at the time I was a kid, so to me, I, I was just imagining what those adventures would be like, you know, because I didn't necessarily have direct access to them. Yeah, but I would I would just imagine what they were like. The other thing uh, about the Silver Age Batman was that uh, 
the sixties, man, that was the era of the TV show, the the Adam, Adam West, West and Burt Ward TV show. So you have to figure that also had a little bit of influence on the comic. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure those shows were fairly popular. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. pretty popular. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I I had a similar experience with you. Uh, I think I had a friend who had one of those tomes or one of those thick editions and at the time i wasn't able to get my hand on a lot of comics and when i was growing up we were just entering the era of of another of the dark batman the dark knight batman which we're gonna go over in a little bit but so at the time i was just really into batman and especially since that version of batman was like so big so it was interesting when I got my hands on this and I was like, oh, awesome, Batman, and then <laughs> flipping through it. And I was I, – I don't think my, my like, little kid mind uh, really could tell the difference because as far as I was concerned, it was Batman and that's all I cared about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, of course. <laughs> that's uh, all that matters. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, he's, he's fighting, uh, you know, this – mad scientist with a laser hook arm or something okay cool (laughs) (laughs) i'm in (laughs) um okay so uh i'm gonna move on to the next era unless you have anything yeah so the the bronze age bronze age next right so following that uh that arrow of the silly batman we we end up going into the Bronze Age where we begin to see Batman come back to to his roots a little bit. Uh, this is uh, Grant Morrison dubbed this era of Batman as the shirtless, hairy-chested, love god Batman. But yeah. <laughs> just to simplify for those of you who are listening, this was an era of more of an adventurer, swashbuckler Batman. Um I think the iconic story and even iconic image of Batman from this era is the story by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams where Batman fights Ra's al Ghul and they're in the uh, they're in the desert they're dueling Ra- with swords. <laughs> yeah, they're dueling with swords and like I think they had, they, they had had a scuffle or a fight uh, earlier and Ra's thought he had killed or defeated Batman. So Ra's was just like, you know, continuing on his way. And Batman, he he catches up to Ra's. And at this point, he he's not wearing his shirt. You know, he's, he's still got his pants on and he's wearing his mask. But he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's got no cape. He's got no shirt. <laughs> yeah. So he just goes up to Ra's and they both get, they start dueling with swords. And, and Ra's al Ghul just says, I, I forget the exact quote, but he says something like, Are you a man? Or are you a demon from hell? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's, yeah. I mean, it's pretty fun. If if I had more access to that stuff when I was a kid, I probably would have eaten that stuff up. That was... Batman wasn't menacing at that point. Uh, You know, uh, he was an adventurer. It was just... It was it was definitely a lot more serious than the than the silly Batman 
Yeah, yeah. This, this Batman, I think when Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill took over Batman, they definitely made him a character who became much more uh, grounded in reality. Yeah. I mean, first of all, Neil Adams' art was very realistic, and the way that he <clears throat> depicted Batman and his world and all of the other characters just made it come to life in a way that I don't think we had really seen prior to that. Right, right. And in addition, the stories were, they were more serious kind of stories. They weren't silly. They weren't, they weren't trying to be tongue in cheek or they weren't trying to be ironic. They were just telling exciting stories about Batman as a, as a crime fighter. You know, he's, he's someone who's willing to travel the globe even to, in his quest to fight crime, like in that Rachel Ghoul story. I don't know, maybe uh, maybe stuff like James Bond might have influenced it. I guess that was popular back in those days, right? That makes sense. That that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, Batman was getting it on with Talia. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this version of Batman, I think he's still... I think, yeah, he, he probably... He still has that moral code where he doesn't... He, yeah, he doesn't not kill using anyone. Lethal. Yeah, he's not killing yeah. anyone. He's yeah. not using guns or anything. Yeah, it's um, just his wits and his martial arts. Yeah, I mean, it, later on, those, those, that aspect of him would be pushed to a pretty uh, severe. I guess is the <laughs> word severe degree. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, yeah, it would, it's, it's interesting to think how, to, to think of how that line moves from, you know, I have a code where I don't kill people to, to where he eventually ends up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, moving forward. We got to hit the eighties, man. We have the eighties in which, uh, we get, this is the era where we get the Dark Knight Batman. This is the Dark Age of comics, or I don't even know. If, was it called the Dark Age? No, I don't no. think it was actually called the Dark Age. Yeah, I, I, I think forget. I think people call it the Modern Age. Modern Age. There we Which go. Which is weird because it's like thirty years ago, thirty-five <laughs> years ago. Well, I mean, I guess there still hasn't been any significant shift, uh, which might just go to, to show just how. Uh, creatively bereft we've become, but, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but anyways, uh, so this was an era where, uh, Frank Miller comes in and, uh, along with, you know, other creators on other books, uh, they all usher in this, uh, this age, this aesthetic of, dark and grittiness and uh you know this is the era where we get uh this is the the era we where we get the dark knight batman which is uh i i I would say that frank miller's a lot of frank miller's influences come from noir comics at this point or not noir comics but just from noir in general and he applies a lot of that to to that batman but uh it's not strictly limited to noir i mean it's it's just i think he also loved hard-boiled fiction like yeah. the novels of mickey spillane mm. 
yeah yeah so so this was for those of you who aren't too familiar with uh all of the various types of fiction uh this this version of batman would just be a grittier edgier uh hyper stylized and i don't know would you consider it hyper violent uh i wouldn't consider it hyper violent but it was certainly more violent than it had yeah. been before yeah it's yeah uh it was definitely more violent than you know the bronze age stuff uh i would even say that to some degree batman reveled in it <laughs> yeah 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 there was a certain glee he took from dismantling his opponents yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I I do think that if if comics are taking their cue from the real world at this point, and this is just purely speculation on my part, uh, it it there is some part of me that thinks it makes sense that in the eighties that we see this just because from what I remember in the eighties what we were seeing in uh in society was. Lots of crime waves. There was a lot of crime waves, exactly. And the response to that in fiction was, like, even in movies, you know, this was when, you know, all the Death Wish movies and Vigilante yeah. movies were huge. So yeah. it makes sense to some degree that this version of Batman was someone who really meted out uh, justice or even revenge I am vengeance! (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So maybe this new Batman movie is a throwback to that. (laughs) They're just perpetually stuck in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) That's why he's got eyeshadow. Right, I but... don't remember if we discussed this or mentioned this during the episode where we talked about Frank Miller's Daredevil, but from what I do know about Frank Miller's life, he actually was in a violent uh, crime. He was he was mugged uh, when he was living in New York City. Mm. So I did not know that actually. Yeah. So, and I remember he he mentioned how that influenced uh, his Daredevil run, which predates his Batman stuff. But I still have to think that that experience probably colored his perception of of uh, what it means to take a bite out of crime. You know, like I'm f- pretty sure he there there was some there's probably something in his mind or in his imagination that that he enjoyed um, writing s- heroes that were were tough on crime. You know, yeah, and, and criminals were portrayed in a very um specific way yeah and and the vigilante heroes were portrayed uh, in a specific way as well mm-hmm. and i think that kind of just typifies the style of that era batman is just a character in the 80s batman is a character that loves to like you said he he kind of revels in in uh, taking out the bad guys, yeah, and he's he's really good at it. Yeah, and they made Frank Miller and his uh, contemporaries made Batman scary again. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, 
it was something that resonated with a lot of people and it's you know that that those the two batman stories he ended up doing well uh, we'll get into that so we'll get into yeah that. yeah so uh moving forward well we have you know the modern modern age you know which, <laughs> which is the more recent modern age. i don't even know if that's really modern because we're talking about the mid 90s <laughs> late 90s <laughs> more modern age more modern than the 80s modern age <laughs> so so this is an era I'm, I'm thinking about from the mid 90s to about the mid 2000s this is an era where i kind of came of age i mean obviously i've been reading comics since i was a kid in, in the early 90s but i think by the time that i was in in my teenage years you know i was i was ready for for more comics about Batman that didn't involve him, you know, going into outer space, didn't involve him doing swashbuckling and were more than just, uh, you know, those, the kind of stories that we had grown up, the sanitized stories that we had grown up uh, watching in on reruns of the 60s TV show. Because I remember that was actually a big part of my youth. I, I would always catch reruns of that Adam West Right, Batman's, right. and and for a long time that was my can that was how I uh, perceived Batman in my mind, mm. and then I, I started to pick up more of the comics around that era, like a lot of the Grant Morrison's JLA uh, comics. I think that really was a driving force as to how Batman evolved as a character. Right, right. Even though it was JLA, Batman was a massive part of the story. And I think one day we'll talk about JLA, that run of JLA, uh, and for an extended length of time. Absolutely. But one thing that that run did was it made the Justice League essentially the pantheon of gods, and Batman was the god of preparation, meaning that given enough time and information, Batman could use his wits and his resources to prepare so against any situation he had a contingency plan for every single possibility <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean this was an era that uh this was an era for me where i probably became the most familiar with batman so it's probably the strongest impression that i have of, of him uh this was you know the i i don't know if this applies to you but for me th like this was a point in time where i was getting my own money and i was beginning to buy my own comics so yeah so i was I, when i went into the comic book stores these were the batman stories that i was consuming but yeah yeah but this the this uh 90s to 2000s era batman was the considered the bat god slash the prep time batman and you mentioned earlier that this was a batman who was just so meticulous and so like so prepared for anything that he again if you gave him enough time he could prepare for almost any uh circumstance or situation mm -hmm. and uh that was something that stemmed also out of that dark knight batman uh because there was a scene where you know essentially that batman just takes on uh, uh, an opponent that is 
realistically leagues out of, you know, miles out of his league. But, you know, because he prepared for it, that that image of him preparing for it, I, I think really influenced moving forward this this era's version of Batman. The, yeah. the prep time. They they took from they took from that story the the preparation aspect of Batman and they uh really amped it up. Uh they they just wanted to make this version of Batman just a dude playing like three dimensional chess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was playing the chessboard of life all day, every day. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um I think another thing uh, I want to mention about that era of Batman was that it became normal for Batman to be portrayed as a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was the, he was basically the jerk Batman. Yeah. Because he, he did not trust his friends or his family. He disrespected them. He, he, uh, had he even had ways to take down his allies like there's a famous story it was it was still in the JLA but uh, a different writer by Mark Wade at that point no longer Grant Morrison but there was a story called Tower of Babel where it was revealed that Batman had developed a contingency plan to defeat every other member of the JLA yeah <laughs> and and Rachel Ghoul uh found those plans and used them to take down the JLA so Everybody was defeated, and they all thought it was, and it, and they learned that it was because Batman had developed all these files on them. Right. <laughs> and then, on, and then, like years later, in the in the two thousands, there was the, that whole. Uh, well, I mean, there were a few stories, but a couple of them that I just want to name check real quick. There was a uh, the Batman fugitive slash Batman or Bruce Wayne murderer story. That that's what I'm thinking of. Bruce Wayne murderer. And Bruce Wayne fugitive, where yeah. where he gets framed for Bruce Wayne gets framed for a murder, and he basically ends up cutting out of the lives of his allies at the time. Like so, he he basically ditches a uh, Nightwing and Robin and and Oracle, and he 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 kind of just treats them as his tools, and they're trying to help him, and they're trying to figure out what's going on with him. Yeah, and he's not. He doesn't even talk to them when they're asking him uh, to help them. You know, clear his clear Bruce Wayne's name. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't care about that part of his life. He just wants to be Batman, and he just treats them like that, like they're just pieces of dirt. And yeah. then later on, <clears throat> there's a there was Infinite Crisis, and one of the one of the stories that leads up to Infinite Crisis was this story called the OMAC Project. Do you remember that one, Albert? I do. That was yeah. with the uh, One Man Army Corps. <laughs> yeah, that's what it originally stood for, and yeah. back when Jack Kirby made it. But uh, they they reimagined the idea of the OMAC project and turned it into this all seeing satellite called Brother Eye that Batman built, developed, and sent to space so that he could spy on the world. <laughs> <laughs> and. And, and it ends up enough, backfiring. It develops yeah. some sort of intelligence and exactly. almost kills everybody. <laughs> yeah, it, it it runs out of control and there it becomes a threat to the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess he didn't prepare for that. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but 
uh, yeah, I, I mean, talking about this with you, these different versions of Batman, what it really feels like is, it feels like there's almost this invisible pendulum that just swings back and forth between all the different Batman, you know? Like, mm-hmm. with every motion of, or every swing, it it takes one aspect of Batman's character and, like, it gets to a point where, over time, it just swings so far out that it gets pushed to a point where it's ridiculous, and then it has to go to a different direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Everybody, so, Everybody's got a different take on it, take on the character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that totally makes sense, uh, you know, because... You have, like, that Dark Knight Batman, and Frank Miller establishes that version of Batman, but for years after that, you know, we get a bunch of copies of those kinds of stories to the point where they become a parody of, of yeah. the original source. An and unintentional parody. Unintentional parody, exactly. And then you get to the point where, you know, uh, they take one element of that story and they develop this whole new version of Batman and... You know, they put it out into the world and it gains traction and it's great. But then so many other writers build on that to the point where, again, the the prep time Batman slash Bat God gets pushed to. We start getting some pretty some some stories where he doesn't look that good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Does that mean it's time to talk about the contemporary Batman of today? Let's do it. Let us do it. Well, um, I did want to mention a couple of other um, aspects of Batman that uh, weren't necessarily defined uh, by a specific time frame. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in terms of who Batman is and what he's about, uh, there are three other uh, aspects of him that that we think that we sh- uh, that I'd like to call attention to. So one of them is the world's greatest detective detective, which mm-hmm. he gets referred to uh, quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if they still really refer to him that much in like modern comics, but it is. It has been a tagline that was associated with him for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the detective... Uh, so there are a lot of Batman stories that really revolve around not necessarily him adventuring or, like, uh, punching people, but they revolve around the fact that he is the world's greatest detective, that he has just this great analytical mind and he has the... Uh, a great deductive reasoning and uh i guess it's tangentially related to the idea of him as prep time batman but it's it 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 is i think it's different enough that it deserves its own mention it's it's yeah absolutely If, if anything we would say that prep time batman is an offshoot of this tree yeah 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 that's fair that's fair i i if any yeah i would say that the world's greatest detective came well before that batman mm-hmm. yeah um in addition to that uh another title that he's uh that 
that's associated with him is the Caped Crusader, uh, which I would tie in with uh, the Bronze Age, the shirtless, hairy-chested love god. But Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's certainly more Batman as the hero and the adventurer. Just a guy that uh, performs feats of daring do and yeah. saves people, helps exactly. people. A hero. Yeah, exactly. It's it's. I, I think a lot of the times people just take it for granted because they just assume that since it's Batman, no matter what, like he's a hero. But uh, this is I think when I hear the the term caped crusader associated with Batman, I, I think of a an era of Batman where he was more good hearted. You know, he, was he wasn't. Noble. He was yeah, noble. noble. He, I mean, at his core, I think Batman always should be noble. But I yeah. think, but like we were saying, you know about certain eras of Batman, like when Batman was a jerk, he was still yeah. a hero, but he wasn't a hero that you'd want to be friends with or anything. He wasn't really a hero you would look up to unless you were a jerk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I I do. I know that, that I'm kind of being jokey about it, but there's, there's a certain truth to it that I believe. Uh, I, I do think that the fan base has done things to Batman. <laughs> And taken him to places, uh, just because they kind of miss the point sometimes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can agree with that. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, and yeah, and then there's like the Dark Knight, which we mentioned, uh, we, where it's Batman as the thing that goes bump in the night. You know, the 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 creature in the night that the criminals fear. Yeah, uh, you, know. you know, because criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Yeah, and though there is one additional one, I like I I uh, I don't know if it's necessarily an aspect of Batman. It might be more Bruce Wayne, but just <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. But you know, the orphan, I guess. Oh, okay, okay. I thought you were uh, gonna say Playboy philanthropist. <laughs> That would be interesting if they did a story that focused on his Playboy philanthropist. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much mileage they could get out of that, but that would be interesting. <laughs> Originally, I was going to call it the scared little boy, but I think the orphan makes more sense. Just because um, as a tentpole of his uh, backstory, that's that's pretty massive and foundational. And I do think it's a huge motivator for him. Uh, and they're they're constantly telling stories that that revolve around that. I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think you ever really forget that origin or or his origin at all. Uh, mm -hmm. There there's a reason there's con they're constantly redo that scene where his parents get gunned down in an alley. And you see the pearls, and you know this is the moment that he becomes the Batman. So it's a it's a pretty iconic origin, and I do think that it's uh, it's it's a it's a centerpiece of who Batman is. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I was gonna say you made what you made me think of was how. As a as a 
foundational element or centerpiece of his character, one of the things that, for at least for me personally, the way I look at Batman is that he is kind of like the superhero version of Sisyphus. He's just a guy that is constantly doing some laborious, futile task on his own. You know, where where Sisyphus was was punished by the gods or I forget, Zeus or something, somebody. um, And he had to roll this gigantic boulder up a hill every day. uh, And every time he got near the top, it would roll back down and he'd have to roll it, try and roll it back up and, and repeat that same stuff over and over for the rest of eternity. Yeah. And in, in a way that's, that's a picture or an illustration of, of how Batman is because he is this character who was so shaken by a violent crime that took his parents that he's vowed on their graves to prevent that from happening to anybody else. And yeah. that's why he, that's why he does what he do, man. Yeah. But, Obviously, he can't stop every crime, but he still yeah. tries anyway. He's and compelled. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's an impossible task for him. That's uh, that's quite observant. Thanks, kind man. Of, it's kind of uh, yeah, it's it's the kind of observation that I I don't know I don't want to say stuns me, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like to think of him as it, there's so, it's a, it's tragic to think of, you know, because that's true. Uh, Bat, it, it's like you said, he so, there was this tragedy that affected him so severely that he will forever be burdened with that memory, and as a result, he all he does is. He goes out every night to try to prevent it, and it's just yeah. the—it's an impossible task. It's a, uh, yeah, that's that's daunting to think of. <laughs> yeah, and it also speaks to how some of these superhero characters that have lasted the test of time—they—they they have a type of mythological characteristic of in and of themselves as well. You know, like there's a reason why that characters like Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman and spider-man and and so on and so forth there's a reason why they've lasted they there's something in them like some primal element of them that taps into the collective imagination of people who appreciate stories uh yeah i hear you man i hear you that's for sure i mean at their best they do i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say every (laughs) dopey comic out there is like that i mean so many of them are just silly male power fantasies right yeah you know at their best comics are stories that have something to say about who we are as people totally 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 even superhero comics you want to go into the contemporary batman what we have now uh want is a strong word Uh, I think well, we should. <laughs> it's a bridge we're gonna eventually have to cross, but well, okay. So I think the most recent and the most pervasive image of Batman that I can think of currently is 
the Scott Snyder and uh, Greg Capullo uh, Batman that currently exists. Um, how would you describe this Batman, Drew? Lowbrow action hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a Batman that is able to find success and find victory in just about every situation he faces, but it's rarely, if ever, due to his own abilities, intellect, or skills. <laughs> Usually it's just a combination of dumb luck or <laughs> lazy storytelling. <laughs> uh, that's right, kids. This Christmas, you can buy your very own dumb luck Batman. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I don't, I don't know if this version of Batman is official. This is something that we've coined just because. I I, I personally don't think that this version of Batman is is a good representation of the Dark Knight Batman or the Prep Time Batman, but it feels like what Scott Snyder took away from previous iterations of Batman was he liked the Dark Knight and he liked Prep Time Batman and the Bat God, so he's just going to make his version of it. And maybe to a lot of other readers they'll look at that this current version of batman and be like oh yeah it's just prep time batman but in 2020 or uh, i don't even remember 2011 what to whatever year they finished their run right 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 i mean i guess i don't even know if you'd consider their run finished cuz they're still doing all the their dark knight metal stuff which is kind of an offshoot of their run right yeah I, I think so. I mean, he's still. It's Batman. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, I don't. I don't really want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, even though, even though Tom King has been the current long-running writer of the main Batman story series, it still kind of feels like the Snyder Capello Batman is the one that's really it's the one that gets into, the most love. Yeah, and, and especially in terms of the current fandom. Yeah. Um. Like all this, all the stuff that seems to get a lot of attention is Snyder-related stuff. Like, you know, the Batman who laughs and metal. Uh, what was what was that last story that they just did? What Batman Last Night on Earth? Yeah, I think that was what it was called. I think that was supposed to be their, you know, magnum opus or whatever their period piece, their their final statement on Batman, supposedly. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the reason that I'm hesitant to say that Snyder's Batman was is anything like Prep Time Batman or even Dark Knight Batman is, I mentioned earlier that if there's this imaginary pendulum that swings back and forth between, you know, um, between all of the different Batmans, this ver Snyder's version of Batman really does feel like it's it takes the prep time Batman to an almost ridiculous place, <laughs> like beyond uh, a place where you could accept reason on on how prepared he is. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, and, and to give a couple examples of of what I why I thought that the Snyder Capello Batman was a little ridiculous. Uh, I remember there's this one issue where where Bruce Wayne walks into this room and the room happens to be booby trapped and and he's he's just uh, I believe he's just Bruce Wayne. I don't think I don't remember if he was wearing his Batman costume or anything, but anyway. It doesn't really matter. He he walks into this room, and when he opens the door, it was booby trapped to explode, and <laughs> that's how the I think that's how the issue itself ended. Ended, yeah. and then when you get to the next issue, you see that the way he survived the explosion was there just happened in that room. There just happened to be uh, a display piece of a suit of a medieval uh, knight knight in, sh- knight in shining armor kind of suit. So he happened to be able to jump inside that suit and that protected him from the explosion. Even though the room exploded when he opened the door. <laughs> that was just unbelievable to me. Like that was I think I have an easier time believing that somebody could jump into a refrigerator to protect themselves from a an atom bomb. <laughs> He's and there was another group. scene. He's prepared. Apparently so. <laughs> There's another scene where he gets surrounded by these cops, and all the cops have, uh, I think they either have Uzis or some kind of submachine gun. And there's there's like a bunch of them, man. There's got to be at least eight or a dozen of them. Uh, they're just they've just encircled him. I remember this scene. And they all fire their guns at him at the same time, and he's just able to tuck and roll and dodge every single bullet without yeah. taking a single hit. Not even, I don't think he was even grazed. He was basically I mean, I, standing at the end of a pathway with nowhere else to go. And yeah. Apparently was, the solution was he jumped like a foot to the left. <laughs> yeah. That was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, say what you will about stormtroopers and Star Wars being bad shots, but that... These guys were point blank, man. These guys were point blank, and they had Batman dead to rights. Yeah, that that was a little too much. Yeah. Then there was this other scene when when Clayface <laughs> got him, and Clayface was you know mucking him up and about to suffocate Batman. Batman's you know gasping and and choking for breath. So how does he get out of it? Well, eventually, when he runs out of enough breath, he gets panicked or frustrated enough that. He finds an extra reserve of willpower, and that helps him break free. Yeah. Batman smash. Batman mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's just the kind of stuff that you see constantly in the Snyder and Capullo stories. It, it, it makes it... It just makes it feel like really cheap storytelling. Yeah. Um, we You mentioned earlier that... Uh, the other writer who currently writes him is the Tom King Batman, mm-hmm. uh, who he had a pretty long run on Batman, but I would say even that Batman's a little different than Snyder's Batman. There were never any moments where looking at that, where I felt like he was channeling the prep time Batman or the Bat God, uh, or even Snyder's Batman. Uh, I felt like. Tom King's Batman was different in and of itself in that his Batman stories were contemplative and 
and I'm, I'll, I'll say this, but they were his Batman was a little mopey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of Batman Smash, it was Batman Sad. Batman Sad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, I, yeah, I do think that we we're entering a, a bit of an emo phase for Batman. So you know. You can you can get that version of him this Christmas, kids. <laughs> shadow wearing emo Batman. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the the point of this big old rundown is just to show that Batman is many things. He's many things, dude. He's many things, and there are there are a bunch of uh, valid interpretations of the character, and I don't think you can say the same for. A lot of other superhero characters, you know, like yeah, like the the idea of uh, I don't know, a, a hairy chested swashbuckling Peter Parker that yeah, that's that's kind of hard to believe. Or I... or how about you know like Daredevil going to outer space and talking to aliens? Yeah. Or or what about uh, if there was a story where where Captain America had a Captain Might? <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I did want to just make one other aside. Um, it, it reminds me of a few years ago, they did a Spider-Man story called Spider-Man Reign, which was, mm. it, it really felt like it was them that trying was, to, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that was a clear homage to The Dark Knight Returns. Exactly. And, you know, it was a fine story, I guess, but... Reading it, there was a part of me that was like, this doesn't really feel like Spider-Man, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it so... Was, it was a Spider-Man story that... Or it was a... It was just a riff on The Dark Knight Returns, except it happened to be about Spider-Man. So it was more about trying to fit or force Spider-Man into that Dark Knight peg, you know? Right, totally, totally. And that's, you know, that just goes to show like goes back to what we were saying which is like these sort of stories work for batman and there's versatility and you know batman exists on this spectrum but you can't really do that with other characters like you can put spider-man in a dark knight story and you can read it and maybe technically speaking uh in terms of the craft it'll be fine but there's always going to be a part of me that's it's going to, my, my eyebrow is going to perk up a little bit as I read it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember about that Spider-Man Rain story, how how they tried <laughs> to add to the grim and grittiness of it by, by making it super tragic and sad? Yeah, I do. But you I'll remember, let you, you remember I'll how let you tell it. Mary Jane died? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> you want me to say? Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so... The story takes place in the future, uh, and Peter Parker is an old man, and he's given up Spider-Man. And one of the reasons that he's given up being Spider-Man is Mary Jane's death affected him in such a in such a severe and massive way. And it turns out that all the years that they were together, he was all the times that he was intimate with her, he was actually his uh, his fluids were actually radioactive and they were slowly poisoning her and killing her. She got cancer. <laughs> you think that's funny, Albert? 
Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I'm trying to come up with the words to not make this gross or offensive, but I just, I can't touch any of this with a 10-foot pole. I just can't. I just can't. I remember when I read that comic, I was, I had to reread it just to make sure that I caught, that I didn't just, you know, imagine it because it was so, it was so ridiculous. Well, but there, see, there's an example of them taking a lesson from The Dark Knight Returns and, like, pushing it because it really feels like they were just going, how do I top it? How do I top the grim and grittiness of it? just to put my stamp on Grim and Gritty for Spider-Man, right? And yeah. that was their response, was, what's what's more tragic than, you know, an act of intimacy and love being the thing that kills your wife? <laughs> I And, yeah, it's just uh, gross. Uh, gross. Yeah, gross, man. <laughs> Creative, but gross. Creative, but gross. <laughs> Uh, okay. Going back to Batman, anything else that you want to say about uh, the different eras? Like, do you do you think that there is an evergreen story for each type of Batman? Well, that's the thing that's interesting. I I think there are because there are so many different Batmans in so many different eras. Um, I'd have to say that. I, well, one, let me answer by saying yes, I do think there is probably an evergreen story for every Batman, uh, every type of Batman, uh, but I also do think that a lot of the times it really just depends on which Batman, or, or what kind of Batman fan you're talking to, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, but yeah, you know what, I... I I think I could say even though I haven't read every Batman comic in existence, I'm sure that even the the stuff of the Silver Age, I maybe this is the optimist in me coming out, but I I I'm I want to believe that there's something in there that's redeeming, right? There's you there's got to fun. Yeah, there's got to be something in there that's special that even even on its own is worth preserving and worth uh, it, and, and worth acknowledging as being a part of Batman's history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, we just talked about it earlier. Grant Morrison, like, decided he wanted to tell a Batman story where he went back to the well of Batman's past, and he's, and he wanted to treat it all with respect, and he wanted to treat it all as if it had been real and it had been happened, and he wanted to tell a story where he could make it work and he did it so yeah, yeah so you know there there's no reason for us to look at certain eras of batman and ignore them completely even though i'll probably say that the snyder and capullo batman is, is something i'm probably gonna <laughs> ignore that i do ignore <laughs> <laughs> we read I'm, a bunch of it but we're just not gonna we're still gonna ignore it I tried. We tried. Yeah. 
At this point, I'm I'm just keeping up with it with Wikipedia articles. <laughs> 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 That's the best way for me to read those stories. <laughs> Somebody condense everything into a one paragraph summary. <laughs> Uh, or better yet, maybe a video on YouTube—a <laughs> two-minute synopsis. <laughs> All right, you want to go into the comics that we deem to be evergreen? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. All right. What are we starting with? First comic on our list is Batman Year One. So, oh yeah. This is a big one. Uh, we mentioned Frank Miller earlier, and uh, this is. This was one of the Batman comics that he put his stamp on that ushered in the uh, dark, the Dark Knight Batman as we know it. Uh, yeah, Drew, do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I will say that technically he he brought the Dark Knight when he did uh, the Dark Knight Returns, which predates Year One. True, true, true. But uh, I think this story is is. It's an even more grounded, realistic version of Batman than The Dark Knight Returns. The, the Dark Knight Returns, I, I see that as... It's, it's still got its more bombastic elements, whereas Batman Year One, really... He's really a, a street-level hero, you know? Like, he's not dealing with any kind of costumed criminals. He's just dealing with uh, mobsters and corrupt cops. yeah. I mean, now the... that you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, now that you mention it, it does feel like it's a Batman that harkens to the... Like, a, almost a, a real-life... Or a more realistic version of the world's greatest detective, I guess. Or... Yeah. Yeah, like, it... It, it focuses more on the crime-solver aspect of Batman. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a story that shows you how Batman came into his, you know, how he basically shows you exactly what the title is. You know, it's it's Batman starting off as a beginner, figuring out what he's doing and how to do it. And you can see from all the elements in the story that after, by the end of it, he, you know, he, you know, he puts everything together, figures out how he wants to go about things and from and, and moving forward it's, he just gets better and better at, at what he does and what he does is stop crime yeah yeah um i do want to say that there are elements of it uh so correct me if i'm wrong and i might not be remembering this right but i remember hearing in an interview somewhere where this might have been the was batman year one the first time that they had done that version of bruce's parents death where they have the pearls uh clutching or the I think pearls he might good? have done that in the dark knight returns okay gotta, let me grab my copy of that <clears throat> but yeah, yeah keep talking while i flip through it <clears throat> Well, okay, between this and The Dark Knight Returns, there are a bunch of uh, elements of Batman's backstory that 
people still use to this day. You know, elements that Frank Miller created. What, like, one of the... I, I, I can't say for sure, and I'm going to have to refer to Drew again on this, but like one of the things that I do remember, and this one I'm pretty sure is uh, more Dark Knight Returns, but uh, I want to say that Year One also did this, which was that they tapped... They, they gave an official backstory for how Bruce decided on the bat. As his, uh, as his creature of choice to, to stop the night as, you yeah. know, yeah, like that's that's that was the the one big contribution that I remembered from from Batman Year One. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, I, I I'm not sure if he was the one who came up with the idea. Of the bat crashing through uh, the, the window. window, yeah. But this is definitely the most memorable version Image of, it, of you it. Know? Yeah, this is yeah. the definitive origin story of Batman. Yeah. So, the fact that he and Mazzucelli, David Mazzucelli, uh, the artist of the story, the artwork is incredible. But the yeah. way that Mazzucelli drew that scene, where it's basically Bruce Wayne coming home after. He almost uh, loses his own life, or he, you know, he he gets messed up while he's trying to stop crime in his street clothes, and because the people that he attacked weren't afraid of him, and he ends up getting uh, getting shot by the cops. Um, so he he somehow manages to get back home to to his mansion, but he's just bleeding, and and he's sitting in the dark of his study, letting himself bleed, thinking about everything that's brought him to this point and eventually that's when he realizes that's when the bat crashes through the window and that's when he realizes that what he needs to do is to strike fear into people's hearts and that's when he decides to become a bat yeah also i uh i I double checked uh dark knight returns and dark knight returns does have the scene where you see the pearls fly when okay the waynes get murdered yeah okay okay so uh, makes sense. Well, I mean, we'll get to that as well then. Um, but yeah, the yeah, um, the the, was... the the summary of Batman Year One is is just a story about Batman Bruce Wayne as a as a young man. I think he's in his uh he's twenty five years old at the start of the story. This is him after spending you know the past several years of his life uh globe trotting. Uh, he returns to Gotham City, and every everybody thinks he's just you know the socialite, uh, a tragic who was tragically orphaned at a young age, but he comes back to Gotham with on a mission to clean up the city, and parallel to that we have uh, James Gordon, you know who would eventually become Commissioner Gordon, but here he's just I think a lieutenant who gets transferred or just. Yeah, he gets transferred to the Gotham City P- Police Department. So you, it's two kind of two parallel stories where where James Gordon is finding out that Gotham is a corrupt city with corrupt cops on the take and mobsters everywhere. And you, you got Batman learning how to be Batman in this kind of uh, pot-boiling environment. 
yeah. where crime is rampant, corruption's rampant, uh, and and uh, somehow Batman and James Gordon end up becoming allies when they're in their respective crusades against uh, these mobsters. Yeah. So it, it's a pretty straightforward, simple kind of story, and it's it's just complete in four issues. Uh, I don't remember exactly the numbers. Oh, oh it was issues four oh Batman numbers four oh four to four oh seven, but you know this is obviously one of the crown jewels in DC's Bat catalog, so it's easy to obtain. You know, there's a couple of uh, a, they've been a, there have been a bunch of printings of the paperback. There's a deluxe hardcover. There's an absolute edition. You can find it digitally. Yeah, it's 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 a must read. It's it's not very long. And it tells you everything that you need to know about Batman, his determination, who he is. The artwork is stunning. Like every single page, you can just lose yourself in it. Just the the sense of graphic design, the the acting, the framing of the sequences and, and each each panel. It's really masterful work. Hmm. I love this comic, dude. Yeah, it's it's a great comic, and it's it's there's there's a reason that it's an evergreen comic, and also just considered. I'm I'm pretty sure it's universally renowned as one of the top Batman stories of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure when we do our DC top twenty five, we'll talk about this in great greater depth. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we'll still have to confer with our our mystics, but uh, I'm confident that they'll choose this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, next up, yeah, yeah. Do you want to move on, or do you have anything? Yeah, else? we can move on. Okay. Next up, we have the Dark Knight Returns. So this was uh, we mentioned this earlier, but. Uh, you know, we're going to go into it a little more. This was uh, by Frank Miller, written and drawn by him. And yeah, with with Klaus Janssen. Oh, with Klaus Janssen. And uh, Lynn Varley did the colors. Hmm. Uh, should I just give a brief synopsis of this one? Yeah, man. Yeah, so this is a story that takes place in uh, not too... Would, would you say not too distant or distant? Well, Batman's like, what, 50, 60 years old at this point? Yeah. Is that enough to be considered distant? I guess it depends how old you are, man. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say not too distant future. <laughs> where Batman, where we have a Batman who's, uh, who's substantially older than the Batman that we have in, in modern comics, and... This is a Batman who, who's, who at the start of the story has retired from being Batman, and uh, you can tell that his soul is a little crushed and a little broken by it, and that Gotham is worse for it. And over the course of the story, events take place that reignite the fire for Bruce Wayne to become Batman, and... Uh, as he progresses, the threats become more 
uh, menacing and more dangerous to the point where I remember I was watching uh, or listening to an interview uh, where they were taught where someone was interviewing Grant Morrison and I think he described it in the best way which was uh, Dark Knight Returns is the story of Batman becoming epic because mm. because at the start of the story you have the city that is just covered in crime and Bruce Wayne comes back and he takes on the various gangs but as the story progresses again he the the threats have become more intense to the point where by the end of the by the end of the series or the mini series Batman is taking on essentially a god and the entirety of the US government <laughs> like there's no other way for me to describe it so um yeah it's 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 a pretty great like adventure story and it's it's i could i could just gush about about this comic so much like i i know we we talk often about how uh grim and gritty is when, when done poorly and uh yeah when done poorly is it, it's something that we we take swipes at here uh, we laugh we, at it we laugh at it we we don't take it seriously at all but the reason that we've gotten to this point with it is you know the dark knight returns did grim and gritty and it did it well it it it, it set the bar so high for for that aesthetic but, mm-hmm. and, and I get it, you know, when someone does something well, like, people want to emulate it. They want to put put their uh, version of it out there. But there are a lot of stories that really miss the mark. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, what ends up happening is it just ends up becoming a lampoon of the original thing, you know? A really watered down version of it. Yeah, yeah. Or, in some cases, even insulting. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have any thoughts about what about The Dark Knight Returns makes it an evergreen story for Batman? Well, for one thing, I would probably say that this isn't just an evergreen story for Batman. It's probably an evergreen story for comics uh, because of its influence and its impact uh just the the craft of it all but if we were to just examine it on a batman kind of level yeah it just goes to show you that batman would never really ever stop being batman it goes back to what i uh mentioned earlier about Batman being a Sisyphus-like character because he's going to continue doing what he does until he drops dead, essentially. Even at the beginning of the story, he hasn't been Batman. The glimpses you get into his mind show that he hasn't really stopped thinking of himself as Batman. He can't turn it off. Right. Yeah. That's just 
it's so ingrained into him and i think for a really really long time in batman comics generally speaking uh people acknowledge that batman was the real person and bruce wayne was the mask i still think that's probably the common way of looking at the character i'd be hard pressed to argue otherwise i actually would agree that batman's probably the real person and bruce wayne is the mask that's what that's probably what makes sense um and especially when you read this story it's just it's batman cleaning up the city you know like he he starts off by by finding himself and then and then he ends up uh taking down this gang of uh hoodlums led by a mutant leader that's been you know terrorizing the city and then he can i, can I interject for a second yeah just yeah. out of curiosity um i've always kind of thought about this in my head but did was he actually a mutant or did they just call themselves the mutants well i'm pretty sure the mutant leader was a mutant okay okay the other so, the other guys you know they're just teenagers that kind of emulate the style or you know like the shaved head and the just the bizarro the spikes look yeah yeah so okay. i'm pretty sure that the mutant leader was an actual mutant but the gang kids because you know afterwards they just uh change their clothes and start calling themselves uh the sons, the sons of, of the batman or whatever you know yeah yeah, yeah. okay all right that was just one point that I needed clarified, but go ahead. Uh, back to your original thought. <laughs> yeah, and, and it just progresses, you know. So he, he finds himself, and then he saves the city from this gang, and then the next issue, he fights the Joker, and then the the final climactic issue, he fights the U.S. government and Superman. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> it just, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and somehow, being Batman, he's able to come out on top uh, in every situation, I don't yeah. really think that's a, a spoiler to, to say that uh, you know he's able to one up Superman here, but uh, the way he does it—if you haven't read the story—the way he does it is done in a pretty clever way. Overall, I would say that the story, what it has to say about Batman, is fascinating because it it, it works on multiple levels. Number one, it works on a level where the story, I think what really helps sell the story is that it works as a commentary on society and human nature, first and foremost, before you even have to think about what it says about Batman. Mm -hmm. But because it has that added layer of depth, when you think about what this says about uh, the character of Batman, it it shows you that this is a guy that has an incredible sense of will and a desire to continue doing what he does, um, which is to, to fight crime and rid the city of the evil that took his parents' lives. Mm. So he's, he's just a guy that even no matter how tired he actually is, he, he continues on as though he is tireless. Right. Right. So there's a, there's a relentlessness to, to his character. It's, it's, it's kind of like that scene in uh, the Rachel Ghoul story where Rachel is like, 
are you a man or are you a demon from hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I because think... Batman just doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you're right when you say that it's a mod, uh, meta commentary on like several levels. It's yeah, it, it like I feel like it's too big for me to put into words, but the like by the very end of it, he becomes mythological almost you know i mean that's literally yeah. what happens is yeah he, he becomes a legend yeah uh, like how crazy is that the it's bruce wing may die someday in their world but the idea of batman will transcend him forever yeah. you know yeah exactly batman will live forever yeah so that's yeah, that that's some pretty everlasting uh, ideas about Batman right there. Yeah, and again, I think it's pretty obvious that this is going to be on the DC Top 25 whenever we get to it. So in the future, we'll certainly have a chance to dive even more in depth into it. Heck, this isn't even the first time we talked about it on our show. Back in uh, when we did our episode uh with zach and shanice and and did our superhero comic recommendations this was zach's pick so we talked about it back in episode 16 yeah it's it's something that we could go back to over and over again just because there's so much to say and just so much to dig through about it you know yeah it's not just one of the most influential batman stories it's one of the most influential comic books totally totally You want to move on to the next one? Sure. What do we got next? We have Batman uh, Broken City by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo. Rizzo. Yep. It's uh, colored by Patricia Mulvihill, lettered by Clem Robbins, and all the covers to the issues were by Dave Johnson, so that's the 100 Bullets team. Yeah. Uh, so if you guys aren't really uh too familiar with it 100 bullets was a vertigo comic that i don't even remember when the what when what years it came out but really late 90s or early 2000s i think was when it started yeah but it got a lot of accolades for just the hard-boiled crime story that they were telling yeah um yeah if if you guys want want to read a really substantial basically a, a novel in a comic book form 100 bullets was 100 issues by the same creative team and Which is it's a rarity a, yeah <clears throat> it's a rarity it's a it's a crime story but it's also a conspiracy story as well uh with really compelling characters um amazing artwork highly recommend that series yeah it was a series that just got so much positive uh, attention that for the longest time, that team was the dream team for Batman because they wanted they wanted them to apply that same hard-boiled aesthetic to Batman. They just felt like it would be a perfect fit. And we finally got it in Broken City, which was six issues, I think. It was six issues originally published in batman issues 620 to 625 uh 
I don't remember exactly what year. I want to. It's, it was probably around like 2003 or 2004. It was the story that came out right after Hush. I think. I don't remember if it was directly after Hush, but it was like kind of in that era. I think so too. That sounds about right. Yeah. So so if you guys are trying to look it up uh, digitally or whatever, or if you want the issues, 600 Batman 620 to 625. But it's also available in a trade paperback and. A couple years ago, they also made a Batman by Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Rizzo deluxe hardcover that that has this story and all of the other Batman stories they did together. Yeah. Um, just a breakdown of or a quick synopsis of the uh, story as as I remember it. And, you know, if I'm missing anything, feel free to fill in the blanks, Drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the story starts out with a with Batman finding a kid in an alley and this kid's parents have been murdered and it, it evokes feelings in, in, in Bruce Wayne and he, he makes it his mission to track down the kid's parent, uh, the, the murder of the kid's parents. And as he goes through the city, he comes face to face with all the various, criminals uh in his rogues gallery mm-hmm. so it's kind of a trip through batman's world through the eyes of brian azarello and eduardo risso uh but it's a it's a story that highlights the detective aspect of batman but also mixes it mixes in the uh the hard-boiled pulp aspect of him as well so it's a pretty cool combination yeah and i would also add that there's a a psychological element at play in the story as well when the way that you see how things affect uh batman's mind uh and his memory because seeing the kid uh in the alley at the beginning of the story that that also gives him uh that gives the story a reason to take a trip down memory lane and even though it might sound like uh batman's origin is super familiar to everybody and we've always we've all seen it rehashed time and time again uh i will say that broken city actually has a twist on the i guess the repetitive nature of that like it it actually has something new and fresh to say about batman's origin story that i don't think we've ever seen anywhere else i'm not going to spoil what it is but when you get to the end of the story you'll be like wow that was clever and really well done yeah yeah i mean i think i know what you're talking about but i'm just yeah i'm i'm gonna assume that we're thinking of the same thing yeah (laughs) yeah so what would you say sets this story apart from all the others and, and elevates this into an evergreen story, Albert? <clears throat> well, the thing about this is, uh, you mentioned earlier that this came out after Hush, which was... Hush was a... It was a big attention-grabbing uh, storyline that happened in Batman. So... To go in this direction after that felt 
it felt like a pretty significant 180 turn, or at least as far as I view it, just because yeah. I know who the creative people behind Hush are. But <laughs> 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 but it but the thing about uh, Broken City that always sticks out to me is the fact that I don't I don't think it's a story that gets too much attention nowadays in retrospect after all these years. But it is a it's a subtle Batman story is the thing that I like about it. Uh, it's one where I don't think there's any like big Batman moments in the sense that there's an event that occurs that will change Batman, you know, as we know him forever. Like no one broke his back. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, like he, that changed him forever. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't kill off his Robins or you know whatever. Like it, it was a story that was really focused on the mystery of this kid's parents, and it was about Batman dealing through his emotional trauma of of the original uh, tragedy that affected him. So. That's why it's an evergreen story for me. It's it's a story that analyzes what his motivation is, but it also highlights Batman as the detective. I mean, he still goes around punching people and getting into fights in, in here, right? But yeah. You know, it's I we mentioned earlier that you know, he's got so many of these different aspects to who, what, to what makes him up, makes up his character. And part of it is that he's a detective and part of it also delves into his pulp roots because it really does feel like a noir, a crime noir Batman story. Like, like we, we have scenes of where Batman even gets beaten up. That that classic scene where your your downtrodden hero gets beaten up, but you know he's just such a tank that he gets up and you know he has to go back out and solve his case. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I I feel like taking all those elements and applying that filter of crime noir that Brian Azzarello and Rizzo are just so well known for. It, it takes elements of uh, all the old elements of Batman that we love and it just polishes it in a new way and makes it relevant and makes it just a great story and a great mystery. Yeah. Agree 100%. Well said, man. The one thing that I will add is that the craft of the story is crazy high. The, the yeah. quality uh, from the, the dialogue to the artwork... Uh, like number one, the artwork just jumps out at you. It's Eduardo Rizzo. If you haven't seen his work in a hundred bullets, um, you just got to do a quick Google image search and, and check out the interior art for that series because it's really strong uh, graphic oriented stuff. He, he doesn't draw uh a bunch of meaningless details. He, he gives you everything that your eye needs to see in order to suck you into 
the story and his his batman is i like the way he draws batman as this you know he's got a combination of uh of i guess that tough guy kind of look but he's also he also rizzo also draws him uh with a lot of uh force like he's he, every time he's in a fight you just see like batman's just kind of this ball of of kinetic energy you know like he's he's always coiled up and and ready to to hit something and when he hits something you know he hits hard yeah so there's there's a lot of uh great choreography the other thing i i noticed is is uh when he sometimes there's scenes when batman's punching somebody and he does look pretty gleeful and that makes me smile (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you also gotta love what uh, Rizzo does with uh, shadows, like with his his the the black and whites, or not the black and whites, but the the black inks in in his art. I believe he uh, was his own inker, so it's he does a lot of th- neat things with with shadow and and negative space. Yeah, like I'm sure he knew exactly how he wanted it to look. Yeah, yeah, he's dude is just a master. And then the the dialogue by Azarello, like when I think of guys that have a catchy dialogue, Azarello is definitely one of my top five. When you yeah. read his dialogue in whether it's in this comic or in Hundred Bullets, the the way the people talk, it's it, maybe it's not like the most uh, quote unquote realistic type of dialogue, but it's stylized dialogue and it's interesting dialogue. You know, it's the kind of dialogue that that keeps the story moving but it, it's also he, he also has a, a knack for wordplay yeah so so you see it, it's it's almost like uh poetry in a way like not not literally like rhymes or anything like that but it, it's it's almost like when, when i think of hip-hop like the gold like golden age hip-hop yeah and you used to have have a crews that that rap together where you would have guys trade verses or not even just trade verses, but you know they would trade lines with each other within the same bars. Um, that kind of like call and response sort of uh, interplay between between MCs. It feels like he does something similar when he writes dialogue. Sometimes where you get sometimes there's he writes some scenes where two characters are talking and the interplay and the banter. It, it just the way it flows. It reminds me of two skilled MCs, uh, you know, trading lines. Yeah. I was going to mention uh, about his dialogue, like, I, I don't think I'm anywhere near as, like, sophisticated as you, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, because I was going to say, like, his uh, his dialogue, like, you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of wordplay in his dialogue, and I, I do find myself, when I read uh, his works, I do find myself having to read it multiple times really to capture the full effect because the way that he writes often has people cutting other people off when they talk mm-hmm. or like just jumping into I, I wouldn't say necessarily like mid-sentence but it it almost feels like it's mid-sentence or like it starts in mid-thought sometimes the they interrupt each other yeah other exactly times, other times the dialogue just feels like it's so rapid fire that, yeah. You know, like a real person can't yeah. think so fast to think of something that witty. Exactly. 
but that's exactly but what I was gonna. Yeah, yeah, he he uses he he's like the one guy I can think of who who integrates puns into his dialogue, and it doesn't make me mad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That is not easy, man. I'm I'm yeah. not a big fan of puns, but this guy he knows how to use puns well. Yeah. Yeah, like he, it it feels like everyone in his world is just is just super witty, right? It, and just capable of having snappy repertoire with one another on the spot. Whereas in the real world, if you listen to a conversation between two people, you're just like, I can't believe I share a species with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got a lot of love for this comic, man. This is one of my favorite Batman comics, for sure. I would definitely recommend, uh, for our readers, I would definitely recommend people seeking out the Batman by Azarello and Rizzo Deluxe Edition hardcover, just because it also contains uh, some of their other Batman stories that are absolutely worth owning and reading as well. <clears throat> nice, nice. You ready to jump on to the next one? Yeah, I am. I am. All right. So next, so next up, I got a single issue here. This is Batman number 603. Now, you might think that this is a weird random issue to pick because uh, it's part 11 of a crossover. <laughs> Earlier, I, I mentioned a, a story called Bruce Wayne Fugitive. It, it's the story where Bruce Wayne gets framed for murder and he ends up uh, having to go on the run from the cops so that he can continue operating as Batman. And it was just one of those big crossover stories that that ran across all of the Batman series at the time. So, you know, it, it ran through Detective Comics, uh, I think Gotham Knights and uh, Batman and maybe uh, maybe Legends of the Dark Knight. So it was written, all those stories were written by uh, a committee, dude, and the art was by a variety of people. But this one issue in particular, I would actually say, it stands on its own, even though it is part 11 of a, you know, like a 30 part crossover or whatever, it actually yeah. stands on its own. And the reason why it works is because it's by these two guys, man, these two guys named Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we talked about them <laughs> when we did, when we talked about criminal back in our uh, Marvel top 25, this was one of their earlier collaborations together. Um, I think it even, I think it predates Sleeper. I'd have to check on the the dates, but this is one of the earliest works. I'll give you a, I'll give you guys a summary of uh of the story, and it's basically Batman uh during this period when he's when Bruce Wayne is on the run from the police. He's a wanted fugitive for a murder. But Batman doesn't care about that, dude. He, Batman just wants to be Batman. So he's off doing his thing while his friends, like, uh, you know, his friends are still trying to reach out to him. But he's also, this is also the period of the jerk Batman. So he ain't really having that. Uh, but what ends up happening is, is that Leslie Tompkins somehow uses a Catwoman to, to give get word to Batman that the cop who 
originally showed up to the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. He's an old man right now, that cop. And that cop is, uh, he's, he's dying here. He's got some kind of uh, terminal illness and, and he's going to die. So he doesn't have too much time. And Leslie Tompkins, one of Batman's, uh, I guess, longtime allies, she lets him know that he's in the hospital and he wants to talk to, to Batman. And this guy, this detective is named Detective Sloan. And apparently, as Batman goes to meet him, and it turns out that Detective Sloan, all this time, he's been haunted by this this case, man. He's been haunted by the murder of the Waynes because he's never been able to solve the case. And, and you know, in the con- current storyline, Bruce Wayne is uh, wanted for murder. So him being the cop that first met Bruce Wayne at the scene, you know, eight-year-old Bruce Wayne at the scene of his parents' murder, he feels something for for this for uh, Bruce Wayne, and he he his dream is that somebody would solve uh, Bruce Wayne's parents' murder, and he can't do it anymore because he's dying of uh, cancer or something. So he what he ends up doing when he meets Batman, he gives Batman a box with all of the all of the evidence that he collected over the years for the case, and he wants Batman to take over that case for him and and maybe he's thinking you know this guy's batman maybe he can solve something that a normal person was never able to solve so he actually you know he actually doesn't know batman is bruce wayne but through their conversation you get to see batman reflect on his past and, and all that's happened um at the very end of it batman takes the box with all the evidence he he drives off, reminisces, and at that point, at the very end of the story, he uh, it's the first time in, in the story, uh, in, it's the first time in the crossover that he reaches out back to Oracle, and you know by extension the rest of the the Bat family, and and that's just basically kind of how it ends. But the reason why this story works is that number one, it gives you a full summary of everything that Batman stands for. It gives you a summary of his origins. It gives you a look into his mind and and his heart in regards to uh, how he feels about his parents and how he feels about continuing on his endless crusade. um, And at at the very end, there's this, uh, this, just this scene that I think summarizes uh, what Batman's about and it's a scene where where Batman is driving back uh to to his headquarters to to his bat cave and he's thinking about something that Detective Sloan had said to him and I'm I'm just going to read it but uh he's as he's reminiscing he hears Detective Sloan's voice in his head saying some cases they just haunt you if you'd have just seen this kid's eyes that night you'd understand Most of us have defining moments in our lives, things that make us who we are. Mostly, these moments are tragedies. The defining moment of Bruce Wayne's life was in that alley where his innocence was ripped away. Everything he's done since then is a direct result of that moment, whether he knows it or not. That boy was changed that night, but it wasn't into a killer. Help him get back his life. He deserves that much, at least. So, 
Yeah, just that passage, man. I think that passage encapsulates everything that you need to know about Batman. And it's Brubaker and Phillips, so you know the artwork is awesome. It's pretty moving. That's yeah. Some, uh, that's a powerful uh, bit of dialogue there. Yeah, it is, man. And combined with the art, it it's it really is powerful. And it's Sean Phillips, uh, his art in this one kind of reminds me a lot of his art, the way he he drew Sleeper, where he's his panel layouts. How he uses he does a lot of interesting things with inset panels within panels and and things uh, where he draws like a bigger. Not necessarily a splash, but he, he draws like a bigger panel and, and puts smaller panels in it. Um, this, yeah, the storytelling is just silky smooth, man. You, I, it's something I would recommend to anyone who's interested in in crafting comics to check out as well, just for the just for the knowledge you pick up from looking at it. But yeah, Batman number six oh three. Nice, nice. You want to move on to the next one? Let's do that. Um, what we have next is Dark Knight, Dark City, or uh, Batman number 452 to 454 uh, by Milligan and Dwyer. Uh, I, yeah, this, yeah I, I'm going to defer to you on this one as well. This one's not quite as fresh to me, but... Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about it, Drew. Yeah, so this these three issues uh, ran by one of my favorite writers, Peter Milligan. It's a story about the the Riddler, basically. Uh, well, I guess I'll I'll start with this. It 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 takes the idea of Gotham City and transforms Gotham City into kind of a character in a sense he he gives gotham a kind of a i guess occultish or or uh what do you call it a sort of mystical heritage or or origin and he gives it that kind of history takes us to the present where the riddler discovers that history and and uses that knowledge of Gotham's history to commit a new series of crimes. And this is probably the creepiest uh, Riddler I've ever seen. If we were doing a, a list about evergreen Riddler stories, this has to be up there. But it, Well, I mean, huh? Riddler's going to be in that new movie, so we'll see about <laughs> that. <laughs> uh... I can only hope that that movie motivates them to do a hardcover of this story. <laughs> so if I get something out of it, then uh, I guess I can be okay with that. <laughs> but it, this is another story that works with Batman as a detective. So you get you really get to see the world's greatest detective at work here. Um, it was a story from the '90s, and it wasn't. I don't. I don't think it's quite as ridiculously grim and dark as a lot of other 90s stuff. Although it is, uh, you know, it, it's still sort of in that Batman year one kind of vein where it, it is more of a serious uh, street level kind of story, but except 
in addition to that, there's an added complication of uh, some some kind of uh, mystical elements. Can I ask you something real quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, there wasn't a sense of uh, like, would you call it gothic by any by any means? Mm, I think that would be a, a decent adjective to use. It, maybe it's not the first thing I think when I when I read yeah. it. But but uh, now that you've brought it to my mind, I, I, yeah, I would say that that's probably an accurate uh, adjective. Because when you describe how the city itself gets made into a character, like that—that's the first thing that it evokes in my mind is yeah. the idea of, uh, yeah, of like gothic horror, I guess, or you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, now, yeah. Now that you've uh, you know brought that up, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, which I—I I mean, now that you that you've clarified that for me uh it it does sound like it's an interesting uh take on batman as well right so it's it it not only explores the existing uh character background of batman as the detective and uh you know of gotham city but it it adds this sheen of gothic horror to it which we don't really see too often, so that that's pretty uh, interesting sounding stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is. And another interesting uh, factoid is that one of the elements introduced into uh, in in this story is the concept of uh, Barbados, who is uh, the Bat God and. That was this is the story that originally introduced that and and uh, Grant Morrison would later take that concept, which was interesting because I don't think I think after this story I don't think anyone ever thought of Barbados for for like decades. Yeah, and then, and then um, Dark Knight's Metal used it. Oh, I they think. did. Oh, yeah, that's right. Barbados is. I don't really remember too much about Dark Knight's Metal, but I know Barbados is and Batman plays a big part in it. Yeah. So apparently they went back to that well. Um, yeah. Which is which is interesting because when you were talking about how um, this story has uh, gave Gotham City this uh, cult background. That reminded me of the Snyder stuff where he tried to develop this backstory behind Gotham and how Gotham City has a secret cabal behind it. Uh, you know, <laughs> this the founding families of Gotham or whatever they're called. Yeah. So I wonder. It makes me wonder if Snyder was a million fan if he had read any of that stuff uh yeah maybe maybe he did maybe or maybe he ended up checking that story out after uh after grant morrison went back and referred to it because grant morrison was the one who brought back barbados during his run too yeah um, that's true yeah and and from what i remember at the end of dark knight dark city uh what, what we 
what is hinted is that Barbados is is the spirit of of Gotham, and and it, it's kind of ambiguous, but it's it's sort of like a story where uh, Barbados is telling us or telling uh, Batman that he's the one that's responsible for creating Batman. But um, at the end of the story, it's left ambiguous because like, number one, how can you trust a, a demon? Yeah. And number two, it's like, even if Barbados did what he said, you know, is he actually in control of anything or, you know, was, was all this, was all this real? It's, it's just one of those things that leaves with an ambiguous ending. And then, you know, for all these, for all those years afterwards, because I think this story was uh, like really early nineties and they never brought back Barbados again (laughs) until Grant Morrison in the mid two thousands. Yeah. And I, yeah, I guess now he's a, I guess now he's a weird looking multiverse metal creature thingamabob. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you said Barbados, that, uh, for, yeah, for some odd reason that jumped out at me and I was like, oh yeah, that was in metal. So, um, I, I forget how Snyder uses it, but I, part of me thinks that he, he doesn't leave it ambiguous and might even make it more, uh, I don't know. All that to say that I probably would not recommend metal. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Moving on. Moving on, moving on. Moving Um, on, we got, uh, let's see, Detective Comics number 821. Another done-in-one single issue for you guys. This one is a story called, the title of the story is called The Beautiful People. And it's written by Paul Dini, one of the guys behind Batman the Animated Series. And the artwork the incredible artwork is by J.H. Williams III. So this story is, it came out right around the time that Morrison started his run on Batman. I believe when he started on Batman, I think it was Paul Dini who took over on Detective Comics. Uh, if, not a, if not the same month, it must have been pretty close. And although Denny's run uh, wasn't quite as long as uh, Grant Morrison's run, his first issue had this artwork by J.H. Williams. And you get to see J.H. Williams draw just an incredible detective story uh, starring Batman. And it's, it's about Batman trying to solve a crime where these people uh, get targeted by... I guess it's like it's either like a gang or he's trying to figure out if it's a gang or if if it's one person but this someone someone wearing a a mask and it's just a a mystery of a guy who who likes to wear masks I think this guy's name is Facade uh if I'm remembering correctly as I flip through the comic to refresh my memory but yeah he 
it's it's just a simple done in one uh, detective story with incredible artwork. I think it captures Batman uh, at his essence uh, as a detective. So if you just really want a 22 page detective story with amazing artwork, this is a good one to look up on Comixology or um, I, don't, I don't even know if uh, the DC app has all these issues, but but uh, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend it. Funny thing is, I think this month or I think they're coming soon, out with an omnibus. Gonna, yeah, they're they're doing an omnibus of Paul Dini's yeah. Batman, so you'll get this story get in it in as that. well as all all his other stuff. Yeah, Paul Dini's good. I mean, if if you get the omnibus to get this story, you're like I can tell you that you are not wasting your money because I'm pretty sure all the other stories are going to be pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. And this issue in particular, he, he, I don't know if anybody's ever brought back facade or used him in any other stories, but it's, he's a creative, creepy kind of looking villain. And, um, again, I would recommend this story, uh, because it, it just, it's a complete satisfying story done in 22 pages, which is unfortunately, uh, not too common when it comes to a lot of superheroes. Yeah. It's, it's a hard task just because the nature of comics is to keep drawing you in and to constantly leave you with, you know, dangling plot threads to keep you buying. So if a writer can do a story where you can just read the one issue and get massive amounts of enjoyment from it. Uh, it's a blessing in disguise. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. And it, the other thing about this comic, about this issue, is that if you if you enjoy Batman, the animated series, and you think about how so many of those stories were episodic in nature, right? Like, you, you could watch any random episode of that cartoon series and feel satisfied that you got a quality batman story this is exactly the same type of feeling you get except it's a little bit more uh i guess a little bit more adult than the cartoon because the cartoon still has to be acceptable for for children but this is uh i mean this isn't like crazy violent or anything but i think because there's less of an emphasis on on physical action you do get more of that tension that comes from trying to sleuth uh, through a, a crime. Mm. Mm. Anything Next else? up, Albert, what okay. do we got? Next up, we have Batman Reborn, which is uh, specifically Batman and Robin uh, issues number one through three by uh, Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. Uh, these are a pair, this is a team that I'm sure we've mentioned in the past, and if we haven't mentioned it in the past, we will talk about them often, uh, just because the, individually they're amazing, but when they work together, they're just out of this world. Mm Um, so Batman Reborn is, uh... 
wait, that's yeah. So Batman Reborn is a story that takes place uh, in this period after. I think it's Batman in the middle died, of right? a, yeah, it's in yeah. the middle of a Grant Morrison's years long run on on Batman. It yeah. takes place during a time when Bruce Wayne is dead. Yeah, and uh, Dick Grayson, uh, one of his Robins, has assumed the role of Batman. And uh, Damian Wayne, his Batman's, Bruce Wayne's son, has assumed the, ro- the role of Robin. And, and, uh... I so okay like I don't really remember too much of everything that goes on but I I'm I'm left with general impressions about this story and it's uh one of the things that I remember was Grant Morrison said that it was a very different dynamic for this uh for this comic because we're so often used or so used to seeing Batman being the serious one and Robin being the lighthearted one in the duo Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, what we see is Dick Grayson being uh, more jokey and even friendly, whereas Robin is kind of the the tough, the tough as nails kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know comics, uh, Damian Wayne is the love child. I guess that's the word for it. Love child. <laughs> Between Bruce Wayne and uh, Talia Al Ghul, and she's been raising him in secret, and uh, you know, so with Bruce Wayne's genes and all of the resources of what are they? The Demon's Head? Is that what they're called? The League of Assassins. Okay, the and all the resources and training of the League of Assassins, Damian Wayne ends up being uh, he he's a little serious uh badass that's the only way that i can describe him mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and uh so in this era of batman and robin uh we're just watching them go on adventures as they try to fill in the roles fill the role of bruce wayne in his absence and uh one of the things that i can remember most about this and you know while i was mulling it over literally just a couple minutes before uh we mentioned it was uh this this era of batman and robin had uh it had a bunch of very interesting villains so you had characters grant morrison was creating new characters for it so you had like mr toad uh and professor pig Mm uh Later on in one of the later issues, did he create what was that guy's name? The Pink Flamingo. Uh, I think so. I'd have to track to yeah. make sure he created him. There's always a chance that it could have been some obscure villain right, from right, the past right, right. that he just dug out. Right. And well, okay. So the thing about this series that that spoke to me, I guess. Uh, as, as we're talking about it, is the fact that when I think of all the bizarre villains that Grant Morrison either used or created for, for this run, and it wasn't a very long run, but uh, the thing that jumps out is 
it sort of harkens back to that silly era of Batman when I really think about it. Because mm-hmm. the idea for the characters are pretty bizarre, even if they are kind of menacing. So what you have, for example, is you have one Professor Pig, and from what I remember, his whole gimmick was he was turning people into living dolls. Like, he would mm-hmm. literally graft doll masks to them and turn them into like living dolls that he would keep or mr toad is a villain who's themed on whose whose gimmick is themed on mr toad from the wind in the willows (laughs) like how bizarre is that um pink flamingo i think that was his name uh like i'm not 100 percent sure that it is but he was a psychopathic Zorro. <laughs> like, Grant Morrison wanted to do a psychopathic Zorro that they would have to face because he, you know, because a big part of uh, Batman's mythology is he was inspired by Zorro. And what happens when, you know, uh, Batman comes face to face with a twisted version of his idol, I guess. Uh. And even the costume for they introduced reintroduced the Red Hood, and the costume that they have him wearing is a pretty bizarre uh, throwback costume to earlier superheroes. It's basically the Red Hood mask, and like if you know what the original Red Hood looked like, or as far as I can remember, the the Red Hood that I envision is he's got the red dome without. Uh, the red dome helmet without any eye holes and he wears a suit and a cape is that right uh a suit yeah well i know in the the last issue of the of these first three issues when we see the the red hood no 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 no. i'm talking about the red hood as he was presented like way back in the day oh okay yeah i think he was just wearing normal clothes yeah, he was just, and uh, when, and when they reintroduce him for uh, this run of Batman and Robin, like he's got a pretty far out costume from what I remember. It it uh, it it looks like a like an old school superhero supervillain yeah. costume. Like he's got like a really high uh, collar. He's got a cape. Uh, it's it's black and white, and he's got an emblem right in his right in the dead center of his chest. Like, it's 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 comic booky. That's the only way that I can describe it. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like he revels it, in the fun of it. Yeah, in an era where so many costumes have been uh, altered to be made more practical looking. And everything is made to look like it's utility utilitarian. So, you know, everyone's costume has combat boots and work gloves. And uh, it, it all seems like it's all built with reason in mind. This was a costume that threw all that out the window and just went, I just want someone who's a super villain, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. 
So that's that's why when I when I look at this particular run, what it speak, what it what jumps out to me is or as to why it's uh, an evergreen story is when you when we mentioned earlier, like you know that there were all these different eras of Batman. This is one that looks back at that era with fondness and says, "Well, what if I was someone who grew up on that stuff?" And I wanted to do a modern contemporary version of that stuff. And, you know, Grant Morrison does it with all sincerity and in all genuineness. And I think he does a great adventure story, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This the story takes place in the midst of his run. Uh, and obviously his run is something that we would have to recommend but if we're if you just have to pick one story from that run this is probably that story um which is funny because it's not bruce wayne at all like there is bruce wayne is dead as far as this character is known so he's he doesn't even appear in the story but there's still the idea of batman you know the the idea of batman lives on i think when we were just talking about uh the dark knight returns we talked about how he becomes a, a myth or a legend batman becomes this idea that will never die and there's a scene in in uh batman and robin number two where uh dick grayson uh he and he and damien just had an argument and damien basically ditches him and so so dick feels like he's uh i don't know maybe maybe not exactly feeling like a failure but he's just kind of kind of feeling like something is off and that he he shouldn't be doing this that he shouldn't be dressing up as batman because nobody believes that he's batman yeah and and he's 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 just confessing or pouring out his having this conversation with alfred and 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 uh pouring his heart out to him he he says something like nobody believes that i'm batman uh yeah i found the the panel says nobody believes I'm Batman. I spent years building up respect as Nightwing and now they're looking at me like I'm one more psycho Batman impersonator. <laughs> this whole idea of replacing Bruce was insane and I hate the cape, Alfred. The cape was the first thing I ditched when I got out on my own. I'm way off balance. Sorry, you don't need to hear this. Guess I'm just going through my own dark half hour of the soul, right? And Alfred says, well... I'm afraid that's very nearly all you'll have time for, sir. The test drive awaits, however. It's not all misery. As I see it, your parents were show business people, Master Richard. Those are your roots. Try to think of your Batman not as a memorial. You and I know he'd hate that. But as a performance. Think of Batman as a great role like a Hamlet or Willie Loman or even James Bond. And play it to suit your strengths. Master Damien will undoubtedly be racing towards trouble as we speak. Curtains up. Everyone's waiting for the hero to take the stage. And the spotlight is on you now. So I I always thought that little scene where Alfred tells him to think of Batman as a great role like Hamlet... You know, there's there's something about that that rings true to the yeah. idea of Batman as this concept totally. that lives forever. I also love how that 
entire interaction just I feel like it's a wink and a nod to the reader where it's just saying like mm. you know Batman doesn't have to be grim or dark he doesn't have to be somber or mopey like you can have fun with Batman yeah you know like, yeah it's an adventure like go out there and have an adventure exactly what's wrong with that <laughs> exactly yeah so yeah, I mean this it's it's the flip side of the Batman that we're always getting. And I I I I do greatly appreciate that. Same here, man. Same here. Next up, we have Batman Death Blow After the Fire, another Brian Azzarello joint. This one has art by Lieber Mayo. You got anything to say about this one, Albert? Uh, this is one that I haven't read in a very long time, so it's not quite as fresh in my memory. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to defer to you on this one. So, Death Blow is an old character from the 90s. Uh, long story short... Deathblow was originally a Wildstorm character back when they were published by Image. But then when DC bought up Wildstorm, you know, Jim Lee's uh, studio, they owned all the rights to the characters. Deathblow was just this, uh, uh, I mean, without getting into too much detail about Deathblow, he's basically just this uh, special, special operations agent kind of guy who was a marksman and i think he also had so like a limited set of uh i forget if it was telekinetic or telepathic abilities but he had he had some sort of a mental power that he he rarely used mostly he just used his guns (laughs) (laughs) isn't that uh He's got Doesn't that just kind of summarize nineties nineties uh, superheroes? <laughs> they might have had brains, but they just relied on guns. <laughs> he had the only power that he needed—bullet power. <laughs> yeah. So, so Deathblow is this black ops soldier who does anything it takes to, to complete his mission. So he's he's. And the reason uh, he's called Deathblow is because he kills people. And when he kills people, he leaves a calling card. And his calling card is a card uh, with two, two red stripes down the, down the middle. So he, that's his gimmick. He, on his face, he has two red stripes down his, uh, going down, uh, one, one over each eye uh, across his whole face. Um, but anyway... Whether you know that or not, it's not important because Deathblow, even though this is technically a Batman Deathblow crossover, you don't actually need to know anything about Deathblow. And in fact, when you start the story, Batman doesn't know anything about Deathblow either. (laughs) (laughs) But the the plot is that Deathblow, uh, 10 years ago, he, he was on a mission... Uh, on the trail of a, a pyrokinetic, you know, a guy that can create fire with his mind. And I guess Deathblow never fully uh, 
solve the case or he never brought that that super powered criminal to justice interestingly enough uh in the comics deathblow died quite some time ago so this comic doesn't bring him back he's he starts off dead and the only time you ever see him in the story is in flashbacks so bat even though it's a crossover story batman never literally meets deathblow instead when Batman is tracking down this pyrokinetic who makes a comeback, that's when Batman learns about Deathblow. Um, the thing about this story is that it's another Batman as detective story. I don't know. Maybe that says something about our taste in Batman that we, <laughs> we a lot of the stories lean towards Batman being the world's greatest detective. Um, just seeing how Batman uncovers this decade-old crime and investigates all this stuff that's, you know, the, the trail's gone pretty cold, but somehow he's able to put two and two together, see what's going on in the current day, and examine uh, the past history of Deathblow, figure out all the stuff going on with the pyrokinetic, and basically complete Deathblow's final mission. Um, yeah, it, again, like we were saying about with Broken City, the, the dialogue is really snappy. Uh, the pacing and the plotting is really well done for a, a story about detection. The, uh, the artwork by Lieber Mayo is very impressive. He doesn't draw in a similar style to Rizzo. He, he has his own style, um, it's very pretty uh, realistic. Yeah, very remember. realistic. I think, I think he uses uh, quite a bit of a photo, photo reference. If I had yeah. to guess, it doesn't look like he, like it's not like anything looks like it's traced. But I, I'm guessing that just based on how he draws such realistic people and and the way that they're posed and and their gestures and stuff, like it it just looks. Uh, very realistic. So if he if he didn't use any uh, photo references for his for his poses and for his facial expressions, I mean that would just be like crazy impressive that he could just draw that from his imagination. Yeah, totally. But it, yeah, it's richly detailed. You get a great sense of of place. Um, the the crime element is heavy, so it it it's. Even though Batman is tracking down a guy that can start fires with his mind, it still feels like a very grounded type of crime story. Like the perfect kind of Batman story where he's, he's getting his, his fist dirty. He's, he's uh, using his mind to solve uh, the crime. He, he knows that this guy... Like the, the thing that I thought was cool in the story that, that summarizes how Batman does whatever it takes to win is that he he knows that this guy that he's tracking down isn't afraid of him like this guy that he's tracking down he's not afraid of of some normal human being that's just dressed up in a bat costume like that doesn't strike fear into his heart but you know what that dude is afraid of that dude's afraid of death blow <laughs> <laughs> so batman figures out how to use that fear against him and it it's it's pretty fun to see that come into play man like it, it's a super satisfying ending hmm okay 
You gotta revisit that one, man. Yeah, man. I would I would definitely encourage it. It's a uh, there's a deluxe edition that came out a few years ago. So if you could find the hardcover, I would definitely say go for that. Otherwise, uh, you know, obtain it digitally or however you can. It's probably one of the best crossovers, and it doesn't even really involve the two characters meeting each other. It's a pretty clever way to pre- uh, present a crossover. I, like, I could imagine that there are people out there who would who would be upset at the idea of a crossover where you never see them, like where you never get a splash page where they're running side by side or something. Yeah, they don't but, get to fight each other. Yeah, or they don't like fight each other or and then team like up. But I mean, like I I'd like to think that our I'd like to think that you know the people who are into the same comics that we are uh, would have a better appreciation for how clever that is to mm-hmm. to do a team up that's not a team up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> you got to appreciate how it's. Uh... I don't know. I, I don't know if it's really pulling the rug out from under the the reader, but I'm sure at the time this came out, there was there were probably some fanboys that were just waiting for Deathblow and Batman to fight each other, right? <laughs> like, there, there's got to be like that one Deathblow fan out there who's still mad that Azarello and Bermeo didn't actually make Batman and Deathblow fight. Yeah, it's the sort of anger where. Like, if they were mad about that, part of me would just be like, you gotta look at the bigger picture, man. (laughs) (laughs) For most people, if you have no idea who Deathblow is, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, like, you can read this without any knowledge of Deathblow, because everything you do need to know about Deathblow is contained within these pages. (laughs) Yeah, uh... He just yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I do think that's super clever. Like, I don't know who told him or who who came up with the idea to make it specifically a Batman Deathblow crossover. And I, I'd be fascinated to hear the story behind that, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Did, did someone come to Brian Azzarello and say, hey... We need to do a crossover between these two and just come up with a story. And I imagine Brian Azzarello just not being able to find a way in finally just decides, how about this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that, and yeah, that's that's more interesting to me, ultimately. Yeah, it is. It is. I think if it had been a story like any other crossover where Batman and Deathblow fight each other and then realize they're on the same side and and team up to fight a a real bad guy. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It'd be one in a laundry list of a bunch of other similar kind of stories. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Next up, we got another crossover story. What we got, Albert? What we got? We got... Planetary and Batman, Night on Earth. So this is a comic by Warren Ellis and John Cassidy. 
And if you're not familiar with planetary, um, the short description of them is they are archaeologists of the unknown. Uh, you have three characters. You have Elijah Snow, you have Jakita Wagner, and you have the drummer. And uh, it's kind of like X-Files. They just go out and they explore bizarre uh, phenomena that occur in the world. And uh, the way that this crossover occurs is, in this particular instance, the planetary team are going out to explore the phenomena of the quote-unquote Batman. So they're going out, and over the course of the story, they, they're, they encounter all these different iterations and versions of of Batman and it's clever because it's Warren Ellis uses this as his way of doing a meta commentary that's an exploration of all of the different versions of Batman and I think that's why that makes this an evergreen story because we've spent so much time talking about all of the different versions of Batman and here is a story that explores all of the different versions of Batman and ultimately what it is at the core of what Batman is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sound, yeah, that sound about right. I agree. Yeah, it, it's a it's really a trip through the history of Batman. Like something, I forget exactly uh, how it happens, but isn't. There's like some kind of a rift or some fluctuation in the in the space time continuum. I want to say why, that that's what it is too. Yeah, and then yeah. that's why that's why the planetary characters when they encounter Batman, he keeps he keeps changing from one page to the next into a different iteration of Batman. Like on one page, you see uh, you know the original Golden Age Batman where he's got those weird looking gloves and and he uses pistols and then uh, on another page you see the dark knight returns batman where he's uh you know 50 something years old and he's just this kind of hulking dude yeah you look on another page and you see the adam west batman <laughs> you yeah <know? laughs> yeah it's it's jokey but it definitely has fun with the idea of the different batmans yeah i think it, it's a story that shows that there is there are a lot of uh interpretations of the character and uh i don't well would you say that the story concludes with the idea that there is one specific idealized version of batman or is it a story that says that all of these different versions are valid or legitimate I think the the latter, quite honestly, because I'm looking at this and it really does feel like it really does feel like, in spite of it all, this at the core of Batman, this is what he is, right? So he he's all these things, but even even though they're all so vastly different from one another, like at the end of it, he is a man. He is a man who is on a mission to try to, you know, save people from a similar fate as him. 
You know, mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. he's 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 man's indomitable will to do right, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that I would have to say that that's what I think Warren Ellis's take on Batman is. Yeah, yeah, like I'm, makes sense. Yeah, like I'm looking at this one panel right here where it's towards the end, and they they're you know. They're talking with this one version of Batman, and he goes, that's how you make the world make sense. And if you can do that, you can stop the world from making more people like us. Uh, And no one will have to be scared anymore. Uh, Yeah, that's that's a good line. Yeah, you know. But you know what I want to hear, though? I want to hear you read it in your gangster voice. Give <laughs> <laughs> the 1920s gangster version that line. I can try some other voices. I can do, like, a southern lawyer. That's how you make the world make sense. Now, now I'm not a big city lawyer. <laughs> I'm just a small-town lawyer with small-town values. <laughs> I say, I say. <laughs> I mean, you sound like Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> Do all Southern lawyers sound like Foghorn Leghorn? I'm going to go with yes. Okay. Now, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not coming down, down here in your big fangled city doohickies. Yeah, but it's it's a great comic that explores what Batman is. It's something where when you're done with it, it you know, if you want to, you could really take the time and the energy to think about what your thoughts on Batman are, you know? Yeah, yeah, like a meditative Batman kind of story. Totally, totally. Yeah, I should pick up my copy of that and give it another reread. It's been a while, but I remember that story for the visuals, man. The visuals were impeccable. It was just so much fun seeing all these different versions of Batman rendered by John Cassidy. Yeah. John Cassidy's art is, like, pretty great, too. It's just... I don't know how I would describe it. It's it's on the more realistic <laughs> end. It's on the more realistic end, but... Everything's like really polished looking and really smooth. I love that. The texture of, of his artwork. And mm-hmm. uh and, and from what I remember, the very last Batman that he draws is like some kind of crazy amalgamation of a bunch of different ones, right? Or it's like a new like his own either that or his, his own vision of, of uh of Batman, like a creative take on Batman. Yeah, I'm looking at it right here and it looks like it's some sort of future batman or mm-hmm. i don't know if it's an amalgamation of all of them but it's not a batman that i'd ever seen before I, I, there was a second where i was looking at it and i thought it might be it might have been batman 100 but i'm not even sure of that yeah i don't i don't think uh, batman year 100 came out until well after this comic okay yeah plus, so plus uh the the year 100 batman he looked more like a, an old school lo-fi batman Okay, well, I mean, the, this Batman is, you know, some creation of his own that we don't ever, 
it, it might be the summation or the distilled ultimate Batman of his imagination. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. We we gotta we gotta get John Cassidy to come back and do a story starring his Batman one day. Yeah, that would be. I cool. hope we get that. I haven't seen John Cassidy on much in a while. Yeah, I'm not sure what he's been up to recently. Yeah, well, okay, so I was also going to add, there's, like, one of the last panels we see before, uh, towards the end is, uh, yeah, I just wanted to read this, and it's just Batman, you know, he's completed his task, and he's, you know, the the universe, the time-space continuum is writing itself, and right before he disappears, he just says, I'm trusting you to do the right thing, I don't care if you're from my reality or not. This is still my city, and I'll find you if I have to. Which just kind of says, it, it sums up Batman right there, you know? Just a man mm-hmm. with just unbreakable will and, you know, uh, yeah, just... He'll find you, man. He'll hunt you yeah. to the ends of the earth. Exactly. You can't escape him. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Shocker! <laughs> What do we got? Got one more. Whatever happened to the Cape Crusader? Yeah, so this was a comic by Andy Adam Kubert or Andy Adam. I think, uh, right? Andy was oh. the artist. Yeah. So it's by Andy Kubert and Neil Gaiman, and uh, this was in an era where. Grant Morrison, uh, Grant Morrison was uh, writing Batman at the time, and he had written a story where Batman had died, and uh, DC wanted to do a big send-off story for Batman that was in the vein of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow uh, for Superman, which was the imaginary. La- well, I mean, they're all imaginary, but <laughs> <laughs> it was the, what if this was the very last story for Superman? So in that sense, it uh, they wanted to do this story that was, what if this was the very last story for Batman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Drew, do you remember what the uh, details of the story were? Yeah, so essentially the, the plot is that we're at uh, a funeral service for for Batman. Uh, then I think there's some narration where you see, or you, there's some narration where you learn that Batman is is witnessing uh, his own funeral service, and at his funeral service, you have the different characters in the Batman mythos uh, coming up and giving a eulogy. Uh, like you see, uh, Catwoman go up, uh, Alfred, uh, the Riddler, and so forth. And basically, uh, it, it's a two-issue story. Um, Batman's number six eighty-six and Detective Comics eight fifty-three. Um, but at the end of the first issue, from what I remember. Essentially, you, you get the idea that uh, Batman is 
trying to figure out what's going on. Am I dead? Uh, what am I? What am I looking at? Is this just a a fever dream? Uh, what is what is happening? And then in the second issue, you get, I guess, yeah, I guess you would, I'd say you get confirmation that he's just watching his own funeral. That it, I mean, I guess whether it's a dream or his imagination doesn't really matter because they're all imaginary stories, right? So (laughs) (laughs) that that element doesn't matter. It's more about the content of what he's being said. Yeah, exactly. The content of, of what he's seeing as well as we as what we as the readers are are consuming. But the, the thing that that really grants this story its poetic resonance is the ending of the story. Because at the very end of it, uh, Batman uh, he has one of those things where he, he walks towards the light essentially like his, his soul or his spirit or whatever you want to call it goes towards the light. And he realizes that the other voice that he's been talking to this whole time is the voice of his mother. And it's about, it's a story about acceptance of, of how things end, uh, of how, of how Batman ends and what you what you get is a very straightforward, um, straightforward point that Batman never gives up. That he's gonna that Bruce Wayne is Batman until the end of time, and the only way that he'll ever stop being Batman is when he's dead. I mean, there, there's even a line of dialogue in the comic that says, "I think this is a." This is Bruce or Batman uh, speaking, but he says, or yeah, yeah, he's saying the end of the story of Batman is he's dead because in the end, the Batman dies. What else am I going to do? Retire and play golf? It doesn't work that way. (laughs) I can't. I fight until I drop. And one day I will drop. But until then, I fight. You know, like there, that that line of dialogue pretty much summarizes what we have to know about Batman. Yeah, that's why uh, the movie uh, "The Dark Knight Rises" that that movie didn't ring true to me whatsoever because in that story, according to that story, Batman, uh, you know, moves to Europe, the south and of France, south of France, <laughs> and enjoys company with his lover you know and, and retires yeah. and you know enjoys his life that i find that extremely antithetical to the concept and character of batman which is why i don't like that movie i mean that's not the only reason like the, that ending was definitely wrong but there was a lot wrong with that movie although it did give me some good laughs with tom hardy's bane <laughs> he had some nice. pretty funny lines yeah but yeah yeah anyway it, it doesn't that the idea of giving Batman a happy send-off where he rides off into the sunset with, and gets the girl and lives his life happily ever after, that is not Batman. Yeah. 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 That's not Batman. Like, and the other, the other line that stands out in that story, it's, it's kind of funny, actually. The, the way the story ends, it, it's, uh, it's a homage to the classic children's book, Good Night, 
Good night, moon. Good night, moon. Yeah. Where where Batman says good night to all the things in the Batman mythos. Yeah. But th- there's a line from his mother um, as he's you know walking into the to the end of things. His his mother Martha says, "You don't get heaven or hell. Do you know the only reward you get for being Batman? You get to be Batman." <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. And yeah. when you're a child, you get a handful of years of real happiness with your father, with me. It's more than some people get. You're done now, Bruce. This time, you can stop fighting now. Just for a few more years. It's over. Let it go. But yeah, I, I like that part where she says, do you know the only reward you get for being Batman? You get to be Batman. Yeah. <laughs> like on, on some level, like on a very childlike level, that's cool that's awesome whatever but yeah if you step back and actually think about it it's just that's like a death sentence <laughs> yeah it's never ending it's a never ending hell <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh. yeah but yeah. I, I like that story for being a, a really neat two-part summary of of the idea of batman like yeah. like, to, like to be honest it's it's that ending that really makes the story for me. Like without yeah. that ending, um, without without those bits of dialogue, I think it would just be a memorable story because it's Neil Gaiman. <laughs> but yeah, with that ending, with those lines of dialogue, it's it's a classic. Yeah, I I would happen to agree with that. I mean, I don't remember the the last bits of dialogue quite as much, uh, but. I do remember like the actual events of what happened at the end, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's it, it again plays into the idea of Batman as mythological, I guess. As yeah, like I don't want to give away too much, but that 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 was the sense I walked away with. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, gotta agree with that, man. Yeah. So that's our list of uh, evergreen stories. Certainly, it's not; these are not the only good Batman stories or anything. Yeah. But these are just uh, the ones that we came up with for for this episode. Uh, and, and you know, like as as you said at the top of the episode, it's just stories that uh, really summarize who and what the character is all about, and something that anyone can just pick up and read if they just want to want a taste of that if they want a quick understanding or an overview of the concept of batman yeah um there's stuff that i feel would make it on a lot of people's lists but we here at between the gutters have to be honest when we say that we would we would sternly disagree with some of those mm-hmm. items mm-hmm. so you know, I'll, let's. I we can bring a little bit of attention to those just to acknowledge that we know what you what some what certain fans are thinking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we see you guys. <laughs> so you have something like the Long Halloween, which I feel like comes up on almost every fanboy list and yeah. you know, almost every fanboy discussion. 
if you just do a Google search for best Batman comics, you'll f- the Long Halloween is going to be on like everybody's list. Yeah, uh, it's just a story about Batman going fighting through a gauntlet of villains to figure out who I don't even remember who like there was a a serial killer the holiday holiday killer right yeah yeah and he's trying to figure out who it is so the the, the I guess the gimmick of the series it was a what like a 12 issue mini series maxi series yeah. the gimmick was every that, month yeah each each issue represented another month in the investigation um and each month specifically represented by uh, a holiday where a yeah. murder took place yeah and i can't say that i don't know i think at the time the novelty of it was or certainly the art is great I, i'll give it that tim yeah. sale is uh, yeah tim sale's artwork is awesome yeah but uh there are strong reasons why this is not an evergreen story in the between the gutters canon. Yeah, I I question whether it's a real mystery. It it wasn't as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it it tries really hard to tell a story in the vein of a detective mystery, but for me, as somebody who's read a lot of crime fiction, including a lot of uh, like detective procedural type of stories. This this breaks the rules of of mystery storytelling. Like if you read uh, Raymond Chandler, he 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 wrote uh, the Marlowe novels, and he also wrote uh, something called shoot the title of it escapes me at this moment. But it was like the the rules of a of a mystery story, um, and and the way that the Long Halloween is structured is that it it breaks a lot of those rules because it doesn't play fair with the reader. Like, I think that's probably the most, uh, egregious, egregious, uh, sin, sin. that yeah. it commits. He, Jeff Loeb doesn't give the reader all of the clues. So you, you, you can, you can read all the way to the end, but if you, if you go and you can figure out, um, you know who who the killer is but if you if you go back and reread it you'll find that those clues are not actually uh laid out for you in a way that you can actually solve the crime if you pay close attention yeah it's uh like i remember there's even a a scene where I don't have a copy of it in front of me. Actually, I used to own it, but I I got rid of it because I didn't really think I need to own it. So yeah. I, I don't have it in front of me. I can't point to it. Um, so I beg your pardon if my memory is slightly skewed, but I, there is one scene in particular that I remember where throughout most of the book, uh, the narration is Batman's internal narration. Uh, you see his captions conveying his thoughts to you as the reader, except for this one scene. Like there's like one or two panels where you get a little bit of narration from from somebody else. And it's supposed to like, I guess it's supposed to be like a red herring. And this isn't even at the end of the story. This is like 
in one of the middle issues. So, and it just comes out of nowhere, and you don't you don't hear from that character um, again. It's it's just a really cheap way of trying to sell a clue to or a red herring to the reader. It, it's it's whack. And I, I just remembered what that Raymond Chandler essay was called. It's called The Simple Art of Murder. He wrote an essay uh, just about how you're supposed to craft a good... Uh, Mystery. Right, yeah. Yeah. Like, how, how do you... like? It's, it's a critique of, of the kind of mystery stories that were in vogue uh, back in 40s or 50s. But yeah. I think a lot of the rules of literature he explained uh, actually still hold up. Yeah. I'd also add to that that, yeah, it just feels like there are a lot of things that Jeff Loeb throws in there for the sake of, I guess, shock, you know, or just, it, it, it's like you were saying, he doesn't quite play fair with the reader and that, you know, as a writer, you can do whatever you want. So if you just throw things in there, uh, because that's how you write a mystery, then I don't know. It, it just seems disorganized. It just seems like you wrote yourself into a corner and you just needed to conveniently throw something in there to make your mystery work which isn't really a very good mystery if that's the case yeah and the the twist ending that he gives at the end that i feel like that cheapens a lot of the stuff that he was trying to build up to yeah yeah and and actually if, if you really pause to consider his ending his twist ending essentially he's saying that he doesn't know who the actual killer is, you know? Yeah. As as like, a reader, you're you're not left with um, well a satisfying conclusion. I mean, we could just talk about it, I guess, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Like so, at the end, the revelation is Harvey Dent is the killer, but then there's an added scene at the end of that where it turns out that maybe he wasn't really the killer the whole time, but his wife was the killer. Yeah. Harvey wife. Which was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no. it just felt like they threw that in there just to add that extra layer of shock value. It was definitely there for shock value. Yeah. To be like, oh, you thought you could figure out this mystery, but check this out. I had this one extra thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It, now it'd be different if, if like you had said, if he had established from the beginning that the pieces were there, so that you, as the reader from the beginning, could look back, at, you know, take a step back at all the clues, look at it, and go, "Oh shoot, maybe she really was the killer all along." Yeah. But, there's no real indication of that. Yeah. Yeah, none whatsoever. It was it was a cop out. It was just cheaply yeah, done, yeah. man. Yeah. Um it also uh it's also funny because the Long Halloween establishes a trope that Jeff Loeb would 
constantly uh he would constantly go back to that well of having his hero fight a gauntlet of his villains with some kind of shadowy mastermind uh in the background (laughs) yeah he he did that a lot he did that a lot dude it it felt like whenever he got a chance to do new a new character he wanted to play with all the toys in that toy chest and the only way he knew how to play with that was how to what's a way to get you know you know the hulk to fight all these characters i'm just gonna you know have a gauntlet and have a mastermind who's orchestrating the whole thing so that he has to fight each of them <laughs> yeah. one by one. <laughs> and yeah. It's just, it's, it's lame. It's lame. And speaking yeah. of that, and Jeff Loeb gets a lot of love for all the work that he did on Batman. So following up the long Halloween, he had Dark Victory, which was the sequel series. Mm-hmm. And I don't even really... I don't really remember all the details of that one. I think there was like a copycat killer and I, I, I'll just spoil this one too, but mm-hmm. turns out that the daughter of Carmine Falcone, I think was, we thought she was paralyzed, but she wasn't paralyzed. Yeah. Does that, does yeah. that sound familiar to you? Yeah. And yep. so she was the one who was ki- actually killing all the people. Yeah. Or something like that. Yep. Uh, yeah, so, uh, and then the other, I, I don't think Dark Victory gets quite as much recognition as The Long Halloween does, but the other big one that gets a lot of uh, recognition for Jeff Loeb is Hush. It's a story in which there's a mysterious villain who's uh, messing with Bruce Wayne slash Batman, and the way that he's doing it is by having Batman fight all of his villains in a gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah, and uh, the big thing for this one was Jim Lee drew drew it, and uh, I don't know. I feel like the only reason people love it is because of the one scene between Superman and Batman where they fight. <laughs> I, like, I, yeah. I can't really think of any other reason why people love it. Well, Jim, they love Jim Lee's art. Yeah. Uh, For some reason, uh, Hush, this is a character that still crops up here and there. Heck, they even made one of those animated film adaptations of Hush. Yeah. Of the story. I think they like that bandage look. They think it's cool or something. Well, okay. I I don't want to spend too much energy talking about all the... Talking about the story... uh, talking about the story but all we need big... to know about the story is that batman goes through a gauntlet that's organized yeah. by secret mastermind <laughs> i feel like the big takeaways from the story and spoilers in case you want to read it you, you might want to turn away for a couple of seconds but the big takeaways were jason todd came back to life but he wasn't really jason todd but it gave DC the idea to bring Jason Todd back to life mm-hmm. at some point down the road. In addition to that, uh, the other big thing was uh, the Riddler, I guess, was far more clever 
than we all had thought initially, and he was actually smart enough to figure out Batman's secret identity, but mm-hmm. because uh, of his compulsion, uh, he can't find it in himself to give the answer to the world's greatest riddle, which is that Batman is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> The other uh, funny thing is is that yeah. Hush, um, like one of the driving points of the so-called mystery of the story was Batman was trying to figure out the identity of Hush, the guy whose face is wrapped in bandages. Yeah. And guess what? Hush, he, his secret identity is the one new character that's introduced <laughs> in the story, you know? You know, Bruce Wayne's long lost childhood friend that, yeah. he had, that has never shown up before. Until this story, he he happens to be Hush. What a shock! Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> that new, one new guy, he's the other new guy. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is too funny, man. Uh, what we also have here is uh, another big story that I think fans will all agree that they consider it to be a evergreen batman story but we just can't find it in ourselves it is court of owls by scott steiner and greg capullo yep it was uh the new fifth so the era is the new 52 this was the dc universe that had been uh re revamped so that they could re introduce it to newer fans and uh what we have is the first story for this new batman era and it's a story that introduces it's a story that like i mentioned i'm pretty sure i mentioned earlier in the podcast that introduces the concept of uh gotham city being uh of there being these families that secretly had an alliance that were the foundation for the building of Gotham city. Yeah. A secret society that has run the city all this time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's been a while since I read it, so I don't really remember too much about the story, but I feel like Scott Snyder's thing is he likes to introduce these like big shocking moments. So that, that, fundamentally change everything we know about the character so mm-hmm. he introduces these characters called the court of owls and apparently they're I, I don't even know they were they like one of the one of the houses that ruled the city well if i remember right the court of owls was the i think that was the name of the secret society okay i don't know if there was a specific uh if they I don't remember if they referred to a specific uh, house of the well, secret society, but they had they had their own agents called the Talons or something. Yeah. So okay. So here's what I remember is it was all he he had this whole weird structure about how all the bird characters in the DC universe were connected. So you know. So, Oswald Cobblepot was one of them, and then, you know, he had the Court of Owls was one of them, and then, uh, and then, yeah, they had the Talons, but the Talons were actually the Graysons, which were, you know, Robins, get it? Because he's a bird, too. 
Uh, yeah, it's as stupid as it sounds, and I don't get why people like it. <laughs> like, if it sounds stupid when I'm explaining it to you... <laughs> Imagine... I feel stupid explaining it. Imagine how... I'm imagining how it feels for you listening to me explain it. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I remember about that story is that we learned that Bruce Wayne has a long-lost brother. Yeah. uh, That's probably one of those storytelling tropes I'm not a fan of. The, you know, the long-lost sibling trope. Yeah. It's It's, it's just kind of a... Yeah, it's it's a soap it's opera soap thing. Opera. Yeah, totally. And, and, and I get that on some level, superhero comics are like soap operas, but this we don't uh, have to embrace that fully. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in addition to that, we have Batman Earth One, which was by Geoff Johns and Gary Frank. It's a alternate universe retelling of Batman, another one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that I, yeah, I, I don't even really, I don't think I read it. I just remember that it was an attempt for Jeff Johns to kind of reintroduce. The one thing that I remember from it was he reintroduced Alfred as like an ex-MI6 agent who was badass. Yeah, you know, because, you know, Alfred Pennyworth as a, you know, as the loyal family butler wasn't enough for some odd reason. He had to Um, be this, uh, he he was a real soldier, you know? Yeah, an actual, yeah. (laughs) And I, I just, like, I never read it, but that in and of itself was enough for me (laughs) to know that this is not my kind of comic. Yeah, you read it, right? I read the the first two from the library. Yeah, it, it was a waste of time. Uh, in terms of the plot, I would say that it, there was. I I don't really remember the plot too well. It's it's one of those stories where, where after reading it, uh, I'll the thing that I'll remember the most is the feeling I had. After finishing it. <laughs> so, so I remember elements of the plot. Like I, I think uh, Killer Croc was in one of them. And I think there was something about uh, Bruce Wayne's mother being involved with the foundation of Arkham Asylum or something. But uh, but honestly, like none of those plot details really made much of a difference to me. At the end of the day, it was a story that I read because... It was Jeff Johns and, you know, he's just a notable writer, a prominent writer. And I I just thought that in order to be, uh, you know, up to date with what people are talking about, I would just read that comic. Uh, But it just goes to show and confirm in my mind that there are plenty of things that people can talk about that I don't need to think about whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Uh, another big title is Nightfall. This was something that we all grew up with. This was the story of the breaking of the Batman. Yeah, uh, Bane the breaks story... his bat. His yeah, back. It was, 
yeah. It was the story that introduced Bane, and uh, I feel like even people who aren't into comics know about Bane and how Bane broke Batman's back. Like yeah. on the same on the same level of how Doomsday was the one that killed Superman. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just I don't know what it, it it's it's a product of the nineties. It's gimmicky. Uh, it was a crossover, so it was done by a bunch of different people. Yeah, there was no consistency. Uh, and if you if you take Nightfall as one part of the story, you also got to look at the follow ups to it, like Knights uh, Knights End, uh, Night Quest. I, I think it was Night Quest and then Knights End, but like that whole era of the '90s was just kind of a slog. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong, when I was a kid, I was interested just because it was Batman. Yeah. But, you know, part of the story involves Bane breaking Batman's back and then Batman gets replaced by this guy named Azrael who gets a new Batman, who becomes Batman, but wears this costume that looks like a stereotypical 90s costume complete with a bunch of pouches and metal claws on his fingers. It's a pretty ridiculous costume. Yeah. he's He's got, like, these claws and... It just looks like it'd be cumbersome to move around in, and yeah, it's ugly. <laughs> yeah. Even even so, I think I would be more likely to revisit that comic than the other ones we've talked about so far, if only because of nostalgia. <laughs> well, I think there's a chance that... I think there's a chance that some of it was decently written. Like, I think Chuck Austin wrote some of it. Wait, you mean Chuck Dixon? Oh, Chuck. Yeah, Chuck Dixon. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Chuck Dixon. Better be careful, man. You almost gave Chuck Austin a compliment. <laughs> uh, I mean, some of the artwork wasn't too bad. Like, I remember Jim Aparo was still drawing some of it. Yeah. But, you know, overall as a story, it's not something that holds up. You know, it's it's not... It's just a typical 90s crossover. Yeah. Huge spectacle, but not in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another one that we feel that a lot of people will point to is Metal. Uh, What is it? Dark Knight's Metal? Or is it just Metal? I don't even know. I I already forgot, man. Yeah. I think it is Dark Knight Metal. Yeah, it's another Scott Snyder joint, and it was his uh, giant event for the Dark DC... Knights. Oh, Dark Knights Metal. Yeah, it was his giant event for uh, the DC universe that ties Batman to the Dark Multiverse. I I don't know how those. Th- oh wait, no, I know this much. Barbados is somehow involved. <laughs> So Barbados, I think, comes from the dark. Well, I don't even know. Okay, I'm I'm not gonna say because I I can't say for sure. But uh, the only thing that I can say about it, and I do I did read it. I just don't remember it. But the one thing that I can remember about it is, uh, or the one thing that came out of it that everyone seems to love is, uh, they created a new character, which was, uh, Batman, the Batman who laughs, which is. An alternate universe, an alternate dark 
multiverse version of Batman <laughs> who yeah. who is the who was poisoned by the Joker's gas and driven insane. So he's got the insanity of the Joker, but the preparedness of Batman, the the prep time Batman. <laughs> Just sounds silly. Yeah. But people love it because they're just like, how metal is that? (laughs) (laughs) I think they're doing a sequel now called Dark Knight's Death Metal. Yeah, that's that's their sequel. And uh, I'm sure it'll be just as adequate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the final story we have is A Death in the Family. Uh, this is the story of, uh, this is the story of, uh, Jason Todd Robin, uh, the second Robin that Batman had, and it's the tragic story of how, how he died. Uh, you don't really need to know much about the story. Uh, the main thing about it is that I will say that it is, it's not an evergreen comic, but I will say that it's a milestone comic of only because it's not the story that makes it a milestone, but the uh, event surrounding its publication. So it was a story about how, uh, I guess people didn't like this new Jason, uh, this new Robin, and they decided we're going to let the fans vote. And decide whether this Robin lives or dies, and that that was a pretty. I don't like. I don't know how much they made in terms of sales or how much people participated, but that was a gimmick that always stuck with me when I was a kid. Like people talked about it a lot. Yeah, back in back when they uh, did that issue, there was a number, like an eight hundred number, not an eight hundred, like one of those toll numbers that yeah. you know. I think it would cost you money to to call it in. Yeah, so you would you'd call it in and cast your vote that you call one number to vote that he survives and another number to vote that Jason Todd dies. Yeah, um, and th- this was a comic from what like the it was the later '80s. Yeah, I think that's it was about right. it was written by Jim Starlin, you know, the guy who created Thanos and wrote the Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah, and it was also drawn by Jim Aparo, who's one of the definitive Batman artists. Yeah. The, yeah, this this story is notable uh, mainly because of that call-in gimmick. gimmick. Yeah. They actually drew uh, two versions of the ending. Uh, like, they drew one version where Jason Todd survived and one that was eventually published where he, he died. Uh, you, can, you can find that if you look online. But I also thought it was a pretty ridiculous story. Because the premise of a death in the family is that Jason Todd, he he'd he'd been portrayed as a kind of a reckless, rebellious youth. He was an angry really, kid. He was a what kid? He was an angry kid. Yeah, he was an angry kid. He didn't yeah. like listening to Batman. Um, and he he liked going on his own. But what what ends up happening in the story is that Jason Todd wants to find his mother because I guess he was uh, I guess he was raised by his father or something. His father was a crook and he never knew his mom. 
So he uses uh, the Batcave's resources to try and figure out his mother, and he, he goes to another country to, to seek her out. All this time, uh, <laughs> Batman is a little bit behind him, and he doesn't want Jason to fall into unnecessary danger. So Batman, independently, he also tries to figure out Jason's mom's identity because he's not sure who his mother is, but he figures if he finds Jason Todd's mother, he'll be able to find Jason. Um, so he tracks, I think they, he tracks Jason down and um, they they basically narrowed it down to like a few possible candidates or they've narrowed down uh, the identity of Jason's mother to a few possible candidates. The thing that always kills me, dude, it kills me <laughs> is that one of the candidates for Jason Todd's mother is Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva is an Asian woman, a martial artist. You know, she's she's in the DC universe, she's regarded as one of the greatest martial artists. She can beat Batman in a fair fight. But 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 dude, Jason Todd is a completely white white boy. You know? So it, it always kills me how Batman the world's greatest detective. How can he look at Jason Todd and his ethnicity and think, hmm, it's possible his mother could be this Asian lady? I never understood that, man. Can you see, explain was, that to me, Albert? See, this was an example of how it's not an evergreen story because <laughs> it is not him as the world's greatest detective. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so ridiculous how oh man how can batman not tell that jason todd isn't half asian his his deductive reasoning skills were really taking a vacation on that one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think with that, that concludes the stuff that people would consider evergreen, but just didn't cut it on our list. Yeah, the the official between the gutter stance is that the long Halloween is definitely not an evergreen story. (laughs) (laughs) But I will have to say that uh, all the stories that we did talk about that are evergreen, those aren't the only good Batman stories by any means. Like, there are there are tons of really there great Batman comics. This is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, uh, you know, evergreen recommendations or whatever you want to call it. But uh, we've already gone on for almost three and a half hours, man. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we really can't talk one. about Batman. <laughs> Sorry, what'd you say? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> just now? That was like two seconds ago. <laughs> I just shouted something into the ether, and once it left my mouth, I was just like, I take no responsibility for it, which is not a good way to live. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I have a closing line that can top that, Albert, so it might just be time to end the episode. I believe so. All right, farewell to all of you. Enjoy your Batman comics. This is Between the Gutters, signing off.
Peace out.